This is Jocko Podcast number 148 with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. 20 November 1950. Dear Mr. and Mrs. Richardson, I regret that I must confirm my recent telegram in which you were informed that your son, Master Sergeant William J. Richardson, infantry, has been reported missing in action in Korea since 2 November 1950. I know that added distress is caused by failure to receive any more information or details. Therefore, I wish to assure you that at any time additional information is received, it will be transmitted to you without delay. The term missing in action is used only to indicate that the whereabouts or status of an individual is not immediately known. It is not intended to convey the impression that the case is closed. I wish to emphasize that every effort is exerted continuously to clear up the status of our personnel. Under battle conditions, this is a difficult task as you must readily realize. Experience has shown that many persons reported missing in action are subsequently reported as returned to duty or being hospitalized for injuries. In order to relieve financial worry on the part of the dependence of military personnel being carried in a missing in action status, Congress enacted legislation, legislation which continues the pay, allowance, and allotments of such persons until their status is definitely established. Permit me to extend to you my heartfelt sympathy during this period of uncertainty. Sincerely yours, Edward F. Witzel, Major General, U.S. Army. So, Obviously, that is a letter from the government about a missing soldier. This missing soldier in this case is William Richardson. And William Richardson, or Bill Richardson, who was a part of that whole melee that unfolded in the beginning of the Korean War when the 8th Army was cut off from the rest of coalition forces and many of those that got cut off as that retreat took place many Americans and and South Koreans as well were captured were killed or otherwise they were somehow lost or missing and this guy uh, Bill Richardson was one of those men one of those men that went missing and clearly from this letter his parents were notified about that and he wrote a book on these experiences that he went through. The book is called Valleys of Death, a Memoir of the Korean War. And he actually has that letter from the army to his parents inside the book, which is a pretty shocking thing to see. And, you know, these days they with, with the current way they notify, they send people to your house. But I can't even imagine that the old days when you just get a telegram or a letter that shows up and says that your your son's been missing for three weeks or four weeks or whatever the case may be. 
but this book I definitely uh, there's the combat in this book is, is out of hand and you're gonna see that pretty quick and like every other book that we review on here obviously I can't read the whole thing but definitely this book is worth getting valleys of death a memoir of the Korean War written by Colonel William or Bill Richardson and it's a phenomenal book so with that let's dive right into it he lays out a little bit of his perspective writing the book here in the in the preface of the book and here we go this is not a history of the Korean War it is a down and dirty look at some of the soldiers who five years before had experienced combat in the Second World War it is the story of the men they would lead a new generation of courageous young soldiers in what would be the last true infantry war the heroes of this story are the young men of the 3rd Battalion, 8th Cavalry Regiment, and in particular, the men of the weapons platoon of L Company. Most of them died. The story is told through my own eyes. I have made a strong attempt to avoid adding to the story what others have said or what I have learned over the last 57 years. But there are a few truths that are undeniable. Korea was a war that neither the country nor the military was ready for, and we paid a high price for a lack of readiness. The disaster at Yusan, written about in this book, was caused by a lapse of leadership from the highest echelon down to the battalion level. Mistakes we paid for with the blood of the most heroic men I have ever known. And, you know, when we covered Chesty Puller, he talked a lot about that, about the lack of readiness. And if you remember, the Marine Corps throwing together battalions to try and get over there. And that was the whole country that was doing this. And in the beginning of this book, it, you know, he talks about, he kind of introduces the characters that he was with. He talks about some of the training that they had been through. He was part of a uh, squad that fired the the 57, they called it, which is a recoilless rifle, the M18. It's a 57 millimeter recoilless rifle. It basically looks like a bazooka, kind of your traditional, if you're in your mind, you picture the, the bazooka. That's sort of what it looks like, and there's a bunch of different variations of the bazooka, and this is sort of one of them. And in this point when we pick up the book he's kind of gone through that and they actually are now heading on Cal- to California on their way to war so you know he covers the kickoff of the war and what that was like and him kind of getting back in the game and here we go they're heading to California to get on a ship to go to Korea for the war back to the book there was a gravity to it we were on the doorstep of war we all knew it and wanted to be disciplined because when the bullet started discipline could be the difference between life and death that is indeed true continuing the war in Korea had reached crisis level American and South Korean units were fighting for their lives they'd been swept from the 38th parallel and quickly forced out of Seoul the North Koreans swept south towards Pusan a port on the eastern tip of the Korean Peninsula now our troops were making their last stand along the Naktong River 
in the west and and a line north of the Taegu reaching east to the Sea of Japan. And they were heading on the U.S. troop transport ship called the Pope, which had just been taken out of mothballs. If you don't know this, they take old old ships when they're not needed. They put them up. Well, they put them in a couple places around the country, but they put them up in. They called it mothballs, and then they just leave these big old ships sitting there. If they if they ever are needed again, they can pull them out and kind of get them up to speed. So that's what the Pope was. It was a vessel that was pulled out of mothballs and now it was getting ready to sail overseas. And these guys get on and they head overseas and then back to the book. After eight days on board, on board the ship, word spread that we were getting close to Japan. We do another month of training before landing in Korea. We crowded along the rail, looking at the shore lights in the distance. The water made the lights from the city look like stars. It's Yokohama, and we're headed right for it, I heard a soldier say. Suddenly, the ship started slowly turning to the starboard and running south, parallel to the shore. I didn't think much of it, but the next morning, we were informed that we were going straight to Korea. There you go. That's the way the military works sometimes. You think you're going to go train for an extra month and have a little bit more time to prepare for combat, and all of a sudden that time's gone, mm-hmm. and you're going straight in, straight into the combat scenario. So that's why everyone out there in the military, don't wait till tomorrow to train. It's not going to come, or it may not come. So they pull into this port in Pusan. Back to the book. The smell was unbearable. The water around the dock dock at Pusan was black and slick with oil and sewage. Two docks up from where we were was a cattle holding area where, and when they cleaned the pens, they just hosed everything into the water. The pungent odor hit us as we approached the pier. Most of the guys stayed below, out of the smell, but I stayed on the deck, mesmerized by the port. The 8th Army had established a perimeter to hold off the Korean's people, the Korean People's Army until enough troops could arrive and organize a counteroffensive. Set up in August, the perimeter's western boundary was formed mostly by the Naktong River. The North Koreans crossed the Naktong River. And then he says, I know one thing. If you're defending a river and the enemy is on your side, you're in trouble. That evening, after another dinner of sea rations, I got the section together. This is his, his little section of troops that he's running, he's in charge of. I want, and here's what he tells him. I want everyone to check his gear one more time. We're moving to an assembly area north of the Tegu first thing in the morning. And take a moment to write home. You never know when you'll get another chance. And that's one of those things that... That can be, that's a pretty heavy statement. When he's saying that, and I'll, I'll tell you, when you're in that situation, if you, especially if you're young, at least in my situation, if someone would have told me that when I was 19 years old, I would have been fired up, and that's just the way it is. Um, yeah, I guess I'm, some people think it's crazy to think that way, but I'm, I'm telling you, there's a whole group of human beings in the world that they have a little genetic makeup that makes them want to go to war <laughs> mm-hmm. and so when you get told hey you know write you write your last letter home you're actually 
pretty fired up about it. Again, I know that sounds completely crazy. And even the thing is, he was a little bit older. So I think for him, he had, it had more gravity for him than it did for his boys. The other thing is, I think it's hard for them to have recognized, even though they read in the news like how bad it was, and we've heard this from other people too. We've heard this from other people. Like you always think it's not going to be you, right? Yeah. It's not going to be me that gets that gets killed. It's not going to be that's not going to happen to me. Mm. So you have that little thing in your brain too, where you just think it won't happen to you. So you aren't that concerned about it. And the other thing is, like you're, you, you know, you just got done. What we just got done with World War Two where all this heavy combat, and guess what? We were back-to-back World War champions, right? America was back-to-back World War champions. So how are we gonna get into a worse situation on this little random little Asian country, little peninsula? Like, this won't be a factor. So you had to have that in your head a little bit. You had to. Uh, I don't think they recognized how serious the situation was, even though they were saying it. My point is that even though you're getting told, hey, this is a dire situation, and we're we're holding up a perimeter to try and wait for more troops to arrive so we can actually do a counteroffensive, even though you hear that, you're like, all right, that's no big deal. We'll handle it. Mm. In my mind. Again, I'm trying, I'm trying to transpose a 19-year-old brain on this situation. Yeah. All right, going back to the book. The trains to Tegu left just after noon. I heard a few cheers as the train picked up momentum. So there you go. I'm right, right? The train is heading to combat, and what are the boys doing? They're cheering. The train lumbering down the track for a while and then stopped at a siding. Word came back that we were near the assembly area but had to make way for a hospital train headed south. The train carrying the wounded stopped for a few moments, and we could see the soldiers inside. IV bags hung next to litters. Men with bandaged arms, legs, and heads lined the cars. The few walking wounded stared out the windows. The wounded Americans had dark, depressing eyes and a vacant stare. A few of our guys tried to pass them cigarettes and candy from the window, but they didn't react. They just stared into space. So there's your reality check. That's what we're heading for. And that's a little wake up call. I doubt that the there was cheers when the plane when the train rolled north again. And they go from trains eventually they get off trains and next up is they're getting into some troop transport trucks and here we go back to the book. As the trucks rumbled forward, we could see American troops moving south down the road. They looked like ghosts, frail with torn and dirty uniforms. Their black eyes didn't even register as we passed. They had the infantrymen's thousand-yard stare. They were lost. Gone. We were operating under Lieutenant General Walton H. Walker's standing order to stand or die. Walker, the 8th Army commander, had issued the order in July before we'd arrived. And here's, here's the quote from from General Walker. We are fighting a battle against time. There will be no more retreating, withdrawal, or readjustment of the lines or any other term you choose. There is no line behind us to which we can retreat. There will be no Dunkirk. There will be no baton. A retreat 
to Pusan would be one of the greatest butcheries in history. We must fight until the end. We will fight as a team. If some of us must die, we will die fighting together. I want everybody to understand we are going to hold this line. We are going to win. Now that's a, that's a heavy statement. And if you know a little bit of the background about this, Walker, General Walker was in World War One and World War II and now he's in Korea. And you had MacArthur at the time who was in Japan who was basically saying, hey look, I don't care, you're gonna hold the line. You're gonna hold the line. Even though Walker was thinking, hey, I need you know massive support. I don't know if we can pull this off. And the order came and he was like, okay. And you know, I, I mean, I talk about this. If you're getting that command, you know, you can't come down and say, well, MacArthur's telling us that we got it, but I don't think we can do it. No, he's like, okay. That's what we're going to do our best to do. Now, as you actually study what unfolded, eventually he held it as long as he could, and then he started to tactically retreat to the best of his ability. And so he sort of compromised. He didn't just, they just didn't stand and get slaughtered. Mm. So he eventually made a more organ, the best organized retreat that he could. But still, the, the 8th Army was on the run. If you remember this time, this is when the Marines were tr- trying to hold the line as well. So it was a very hard situation. Mm-hmm. Going back to the book, thick black smoke rose in a steady stream on the other side of the horizon. I could see only a few of the squat huts, but the valley and ridges had thick scraggly bushes, which made it very difficult to see any movement. Suddenly, artillery shells and mortar rounds crashed down around us. We dove into ditches that lined the road and waited for the barrage to end. I waved to my section and got them together before we moved out toward the outskirts of the village. A smoky haze with the pungent smell of gunpowder hung over us as we started moving forward. I could feel my heart beating and my breaths came quickly, almost like I was running. But it wasn't nerves. It was adrenaline. My body was on fire, popping with energy. Back on the road, a North Korean machine gun to our right opened fire. I could see tracer rounds in almost slow motion dashing into the line of men ahead of me. The soldiers ducked and dove out of the way as the rounds bit into the dirt around them. Time is a strange thing in combat. Sometimes it moves so fast that you cannot believe it, and other times it is moving so slowly that you could scream. We dove into the dirt and pressed ourselves flat against the ground. Maccabee, and Maccabee at this time is the uh, company commander, started moving the other platoons toward the guns, while my section, part of the weapons platoon, provided supporting fire so there you go they set up a little cover and move this was real combat all of my fears seemed so far away now i didn't have time to worry about how i'd react i just had to act turning back towards walsh's gun i yelled for him to get in position and start firing at the machine guns walsh nodded and started calling to his men like veterans they ignored the machine gun fire and got the gun up and got ready put some fire on that hill i shouted pointing toward the North Korean gunners with my hand. Walsh pointed out the machine gun position, and Gomez, the assistant gunner, loaded around and Hall sighted in the gun and fired. My section fired its first shot of the war. So a couple key things that I liked about this paragraph. of You know, he talks about time and the weird things that time do, does during combat. And that happens during any really stressful situation where you become hyper 
sensitive to what's happening and in with the way it appears the way it feels is that time is actually slowing down mm-hmm. I think the first time that I ever experienced that was in a car crash not a bad car crash but I was in a car crash and it seemed like things were moving in slow motion and I wasn't driving I was just a passenger but I was that's the first time I ever felt it um, and then the other thing I so you can you can be expecting that. Be expecting if you're going into combat that you might have that slow motion. And it's actually an awesome thing because you can feel like you can, I don't know, to me it didn't feel like I was moving slow. It always felt like things were moving slow and I could still, it gave me more time to react. It's like if you were doing jujitsu and your opponent was moving in slow motion. But even though you weren't, even though you couldn't move faster than them, you could see it and react to it properly. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. And then the other thing is, if you notice, the fear, he's saying that he didn't have time to be afraid, which is definitely something I've felt where like once rounds are being shot, you're not thinking, oh, I'm going to get shot. You're thinking, okay, we need to, we need to get online. We need to peel right. We need to, we need to make a call as opposed to, and what that that's based on, in my opinion, is training. And if you train properly, then you just react. That just that's just what happens. And this is why, and you heard me say this at the at the muster when I was talking about like from a self-defense perspective, for females that are doing jujitsu for the first time, I'm like, hey, if you've never done jujitsu before, you're about to see that this is about as intimate as a sport or or it's about as intimate as an activity you can possibly engage in mm-hmm. without actually Taking it to the next level, right? Without actually having, without like a, being married, with, to yes, without being thing. married to the other person, right? <laughs> yeah. So, and and that's the thing. If you get used to that, you get used to somebody grinding on you. Get used to someone grabbing you, and you, once you get used to it, then you don't have to deal with that in the moment because you already know how to deal with it. You can just react. Mm-hmm. So it's the same thing here. These guys have trained really hard, and so now once this situation is unfolding, what they're doing is just reacting to it as they should. They're not sitting there panicking and getting getting scared. Not that everyone's going to be like that, because you will have some people that will immediately get that that fight or flight, and they might roll into the flight scenario of getting down and hiding. And so you might have to deal with that a little bit. Um, but be ready for any of those reactions. Hmm. So now the first, once they get through this first big kind of firefight going on, now we're going back to the book. The guys were digging in. I told them to set up the guns, but we'd be covering our section with rifles that night. We were all wired after our first firefight, and it was good that we had something to do. I was happy to see that everyone, everybody was digging in with a sense of urgency. I was worried about our open flank to the right. I ordered the section to dig in some positions facing to the right in case we had to occupy them. When we were done, I told my guys to eat and rest while they got with Walsh and Gray. Word is the North Koreans were attacking that night. So the uh, most of the you'll see throughout this book that the North Koreans and then eventually the Chinese they do their attacks during the night. That's what they do. That's how they roll. They're they're and if you remember even T Fred Harvey was talking about when he was doing the island hopping, hopping campaign they it was Americans moving in the day and then at night the Japanese would attack. So a similar situation here. Now it's actually the opposite against the enemy because we have you know we have night vision capabilities we have a huge advantage at night so that's when we normally work in and 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 in the seal teams that's the way that's the way we always worked we always worked at night now when we got to Ramadi and it was a lot of daytime fighting we, we had to fight in the day but the, pr- the preferred thing is to fight at night and that goes back to the seals in Vietnam and if you remember Roger Hayden I think it was Roger Hayden was saying 
when they were going out at night, no one else was going out at night. It was just like SEALs would go out at night. But other than that, it was only the Viet Cong that were going out at night and, mm-hmm. and the NVA. Was, but friendly forces, just just seals, mm-hmm. and I'm, I know there's other there's other ones. But he was saying early on it was them. Mm. So now the attack comes. Here we go back to the book. The attack started with a guttural scream. The North Koreans came out of the brush in waves. We could see them moving toward us like shadows. Muzzle flashes exploded out of the darkness. There was very little aimed fire. Instead, we were firing straight ahead and into their assigned zones. Soon, screams came from our wounded, joined the chorus of battle cries, orders, and machine guns. Illuminating rounds from our mortar section soon lit up the area like a ballpark, making the North Korean soldiers look like silhouettes on a firing range. We dropped several before the flare burned out. Since the rounds were in short supply, the mortars waited several minutes between rounds. During a lull, I could hear one of the engineers to our left screaming in pain and calling for his mother. His sobs and screams for help landed harder than the North Korean artillery shells. Finally, Private Jones, one of my young smartasses, had heard enough. He started to yell and scream. I covered Walsh as he scrambled out to Jones. He was on the bottom of Hall's hole, crying. Walsh tried to get him up, but he wouldn't move. I climbed out and helped Walsh drag Jones's ass out of the foxhole. You stay with Hall, I told Walsh. Snatching Jones by his shirt collar, I stumbled with him back to my foxhole. He crawled in and huddled against the wall, sobbing. He couldn't talk, even when I asked him a simple question. His body heaved with every sob. The engineer had finally stopped screaming and now, in an ever-desperate voice, pleaded for someone to come get him. Stay in your holes, I barked. I was sure the North Koreans were lying in wait, hoping someone would try and get him. God, I wished he would just die. That thought sent a jolt through me. Jesus Christ, I didn't really mean that, that poor son of a bitch. My only thought now was, please, God, bring the daylight soon. When the sun's rays finally peaked over the horizon, we started getting the wounded off the hill. So, there you go. Like I said, there's some people that are not going to react well. And, and you got this kid, Jones, that can't handle this situation. And he's done. He's done. What is this, night two? He's done. And, I mean, obviously it doesn't help when you've got a, one of your wounded guys out just ahead of you. And he's screaming for help. And crying for help. And you can't do anything. And the order from Richardson, which is, you know, stay in your holes. And, again, this is the same exact thing that T. Fred Harvey talked about when they captured one of his guys and they the Japanese sat and tortured him it sounded like 30 40 meters away they mm-hmm. tortured this guy the whole night and the whole night T Fred Harvey's you know leaders were saying stay in your hole stay in your holes we're staying what a what a what a nightmare that is Back to the book, Walsh grabbed me. And here's what Walsh says, Sarge, Black lost it. 
He's crying and he's hugging a tree and will not respond to me. Black. I didn't know him very well. He was one of the company's problem children. He'd gotten drunk after a unit picnic at Fort Devens and the military police had locked him up for being drunk and disorderly. This incident confirmed that it, what I thought already. Black was going to be a constant problem. I put him in Walsh's squad and we both kept on his ass making sure he was doing the right thing. When I got to Black, he was wrapped around a tree like a vine. Every time a shell landed nearby, he began shaking and crying. No talking was going to help. I just wanted to get him away from the rest of the men. The section had fought well, but after listening to the engineer all night, they had their own nerves to contend, contend with. That made two men within 24 hours. If this continued, I would lose the whole section to fear instead of the enemy. Yeah, so two guys gone. Two guys can't, and, and he ends up sending him to the rear because he just can't, he can't do anything with this guy. And that's a tough call to make. Hey, if I send this guy to the rear, how's that going to affect everyone else on the team? Everyone else on the team is going to be thinking, you know, oh, all I need to do is cry and scream and I'll get, I'll save my ass. Hmm. So, you know, in my opinion, there's just, if you're in these situations, I think if you're scared to die, it's going to be a problem. Hmm. If you're scared to die, it's going to be a problem. If you basically accept the fact that you you could die and and you're okay with that that's how you that's to me that's the difference between these two guys and everyone else hmm. everyone else was like okay do they want to die no i'm not saying they want to die but they recognize they can die and they're okay with it hmm. you know I, I, maybe okay with it's a strong word they accept it right. i should say they accept it whereas these two guys are scared and if you're scared to die then I think this is this is the kind of thing that happens because obviously if you're if you're like okay you know what there's a chance I could die, and that's the way it is, mm. and I'm willing to take that chance and I'm going to do my best like that's one attitude. The other attitude is I don't want to die, and here I am in a situation where death is everywhere around me, and that just closes in on your brain, right? Yeah. That just closes in on your brain. I can't like I can't imagine I can't imagine how that would how that would affect you psychologically if you were scared of scared of dying and again i don't want to i'm not trying to sound like hey i want to die or troops on the front line are like yeah we don't care if we die no i'm not talking about that but to be able to psychologically say hey look i could die that's one of the possible outcomes here yeah. and okay i get it and i'm okay with that that's different than being I don't want to die out if you don't if you're if your main goal is to not die and you're in a combat situation especially a really really violent hardcore combat situation like this this isn't gonna work out good for you yeah. at all yeah because it's like when I you know when I used to work with MMA fighters mm -hmm. if they were scared of getting knocked out yeah if that's what they were scared of it's really hard to not be to, to go into that cage with any level of confidence because you're scared of that one thing that might happen it's the same thing here yeah. if you're sc so scared of that one thing happening that's going to possess your brain yeah and even you, yeah mma even if like you're i don't know if you're new to boxing or something you know and you it's like you haven't accepted the fact that you're going to get hit yet mm. you know so every time like someone even you know if they throw a faint, you're reacting yeah, yeah. to yeah. everything, right? So if you're constantly under the 
kind of the stress. It, yeah, the stress of like bullets and all this stuff. It's like your what do you, what do you call it? Your self preservation. Yeah. Uh, me- mechanism in your brain is just firing, 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 and then after a while, that thing is just like gone haywire already. Yeah. It's gone into overdrive. That's what's happening to these guys, man. It's horrible. To, it's horrible to see. Yeah. All right, back to the book. The smoke and dust still hung in the air when they attacked again. The first waves came with rifles. Behind them, more soldiers followed and picked up the weapons left by the dead. So th- that's a that's a common battle plan we're we're going to hear is and we've heard it before in in other books about the Korean War. Hey, we're going to send the first wave. They're going to have rifles and magazines. The next wave is just going to come and pick up the dead guy's gear and use that. So part of the plan is the guy's dying. Part That's of the plan is part of the yeah, plan. It's absolutely part of the plan. And and not a small amount either. Cuz yeah. you know when you when when the military, when the US military, when we plan a big operation, you plan for casualties. And I can't say this about the SEAL teams. The SEAL teams isn't like, okay, like we're going to take this amount of casualties. The SEAL teams doesn't do that. We're not planning to take any casualties. But like you go with a big a big division going in for an airborne drop in World War II, they were like, okay, 10% of these folks are going to be injured on the drop. Mm. Boom, that's it. So, yeah. And these guys are just saying, hey, we got, whatever, 300 guys attacking? We need about 70 guns or, or whatever that number is. Back to the book. On almost every attack, the North Koreans tried to slip behind our lines and cut off our avenue of retreat. Once they did, they would pound our flanks. This time, the North Korean soldiers charged uphill right into the teeth of our machine guns. After the third attempt, they quit, and we settled in for a tense night. We waited all night, but they didn't attack again. North Koreans instead went around us and cut off the road back to Tabu Dong. As the fingers of the pink light shot up over the horizon, we were ordered to withdraw through the Korean line. This was not going to be easy. So going back, so they're getting called back. Hey, there's a Korean line and they're getting told to fall back past that line. So they they basically, they're kind of surrounded even at this point. And here we go, he kind of expands on what it was like from his perspective. And he talks a little bit about this, just general Walton Walker's mobile defense, which was, hey, Basically use a, f- a thin line of people to sort of to Sort of hold up the enemy and then as like a screen and then the bulk of the force would be ready for a counterattack and it was It was kind of considered a theory at this time But this is what they were trying to do and then he says for us ground troops. It was confusing This game of chess had become maddening. I never had a map and Seldom knew the number designation of the hills or objectives now. That's crazy that's freaking crazy and you've heard me say this the most important piece of information you can have on the battlefield is where you are mm. if you don't even have a map and he's a section leader and doesn't have a map just fyi like nowadays when we go out every single guy has a detailed battle map of the whole area of operations mm. to think that you have a, a section leader that doesn't even have a map that's that's crazy and then the number designations he talks about when you know you hear about Hill 348 or whatever. He doesn't even know what those are. Back to the book. We only knew to move, attack, and defend unknown hills that would stop the North Koreans from breaking through and capturing the city of Taegu. 
this was our world following orders fighting for one another being successful and somehow surviving now they're they're sort of in a, a little lull in the fighting and one of his guys comes over the guy's name is gray I'm not feeling very good I need to sit down for a few minutes gray said his head was pounding and he felt dizzy try to come over as soon as you can are you gonna be all right yeah just give me a few minutes when we got to the other side of the ridge I turned and looked back at gray sitting on a tree stump he had his head in his hands now we know we know what this is a symbol of right this is a symbol of like a little bit of combat stress happening mm-hmm. but he's just trying to get it together mm-hmm. gray and Walsh had been great squad leaders and I hoped he was okay I needed him to I needed him and his leadership I had taken off my helmet to wake to wipe away some sweat when gray and the stump suddenly disappeared in a fireball an artillery round landed right on him I was stunned and just stood on the ridge looking at the smoking crater something happens to men who see combat no matter how you try you cannot make death invisible it is there with you every moment that split second would be seared into my mind for the rest of my life but at that time we didn't have time to mourn gray we had to get dug in start digging that round has us zeroed and the barrage will be coming next I said grabbing Walsh get Hall over and take charge of Gray's squad tell him I'll be over there to talk to him later for the rest of the day I kept the men busy anything to keep their minds off gray so let's think about that again you can see you can see that Richardson he's he's legit and this is your classic situation where this horrible thing you witness this horrible thing everyone sees it and what does he say hey look and this is horrifying you say oh they have us zeroed in so where the next rounds gonna hit they're gonna hit all around us so what we need to do is dig in and we need to do it now and then he just immediately says hall go take over gray's squad look gray's gone we need to move on tell him I'll be over to talk to him later Back to the book. What drove me more than anything was a positive outlook and the fact that my men were watching everything I did. I often wondered when we were moving down the road what went through their minds. This is something that every leader should be thinking about all the time. Is that everyone's watching you. Your, your, your boys are watching you. And they're judging you. As harsh as that sounds, that's what's happening. So you know what? Give them a good example. I'll tell you what. When I, see, when I would see leaders... In the SEAL teams that didn't act that way that didn't act as if they were being watched all the time they 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 usually slacked off like what does that look like where oh what that looks like is, I mean yeah like hey oh no one I can be a little bit late no one's watching yeah yeah that that's a big one like oh it's okay oh I, I didn't need this piece of gear oh I'll cut the corner on this thing just all those little tiny things and not to mention when you're in a situation like this they're watching you when you say, hey, you know what? They got us dialed in. We need to get dug in now. Hall, you got that gray squad now. Get to it. They're watching that too. Yeah. And they're seeing and going, okay. They're judging. And what are they judging? They're judging positive. Mm-hmm. They're judging that Richardson's got his shit together and he's going to take care of them. Mm-hmm. 
back to the book. It had to be a lot tougher on them than on me. While they had only death to dwell on, I had dozens of other things that I must be thinking about and prepared for. What was ahead? Where would I be if I were a North Korean? How would I react if we got hit from the right or left? How was our ammunition? Water. Was the boar sighting of the guns still all right? Where were the men? Were the men taking care of their feet? So he's saying this correctly so, but this is a kind of a different twist. Is, you know, a lot of times you hear a leader say, well, I was responsible for all these guys and that was a heavier weight. But for him, he's thinking, I was busy with all these other things. All these other guys had to do is think about the fact that they're about to die. Mm-hmm. And how that's actually harder on them. Right. right. So if you, if you go into it with the perspective that everything's for you is harder, and for for everything, you know, for me it's harder because I'm the leader. Whereas his attitude is fantastic, which is, look, I'm I have the luxury of having other things to think about. Yeah. These poor guys, they're just thinking about you know them being overrun, as opposed to if your attitude was flipped, and you were. You know, thinking I have it so hard, but these guys have it so easy. They right. will sense that, yeah. and that's not going to end up net positive for you and your in your leadership. Mm. Back to the book. The next North Korean assault started with screams and machine gun fire, but we beat it back with mortars and our own machine gun fire. Running between holes, I made sure everybody was ready for the next wave. Walsh had his section up and ready to fire. Hall was also ready, which was impressive, impressive since he had just taken over from Gray. The second attack was worse. The North Koreans were less than 50 yards from us. As I fired at the shadows moving toward us, I heard a frantic voice come over the radio. Roy Rogers 3. The voice said in a deep southern draw, I needs more firepower. I needs more firepower. I'm about to get overrun. It was Lieutenant Jim Brown from the platoon that was on our left. I hope to hell he got more fire support. We were all hanging by a thread. Dead North Korean soldiers were stacking up in front of our foxholes, but they kept coming, wave after wave. I could hear Walsh screaming at the men to stay in their holes. I was frantically changing the magazine in my carbine as two of the North Koreans were within 10 feet of me. Walsh and Hall saw them too and opened fire, cutting the North Korean soldiers down. I saw another North Korean to my right and fired. He staggered back and dropped to the ground. I stayed low in my foxhole and kept firing straight ahead. Hall and Walsh kept firing to the rear, hitting the North Koreans attempting to move through our position. We had them in a crossfire, and in minutes our position was littered with North Korean bodies. Sliding a fresh magazine into my carbine, I poked my head up, waiting for the next wave. But it never came. Stay alert. Some of them may still be alive. If you, if you see any movement, shoot them. We waited a few minutes and finally climbed out. Check around your holes for live Koreans. And he goes on to say that we dragged the rest of the bodies away from our position and piled them to one side. I didn't even look at their faces. I didn't care. And he talks about the fact that his medics would try and take care of the North Korean wounded soldiers. Mm. That's pretty impressive. Back to the book. As daylight peeked over its head over the hills, a tall, scrubby-looking infantryman carrying a carbine approached me from out of the mist. As he got closer, I saw the small white cross painted on his helmet. 
He stuck out his hand as he approached. Chaplain Capon, he said, giving me a firm handshake. Where are you from? Chaplain Emil Capon from Pilsen, Kansas, was a Catholic father who joined the army toward the end of World War II. He served in Burma and India until May 1946. He returned home and was assigned a parish in Kansas. But he felt his calling was with the troops, so he rejoined the army in 1948. He joined us in Korea after spending a few months in Japan. His uniform was dirty and he, like the rest of us, needed a shave. It was clear he'd spent the night up close to the fighting and not safely in the rear. There was a peacefulness about him, though, that put me at ease, a quiet confidence. He seemed to care where I was from, and I watched him as he spoke to the rest of the section. Each time he asked a soldier where he was from and gave him a firm handshake. It was not long before he had us all smiling. When Capon finished making his rounds, he sat down near my foxhole and took out his pipe. It was missing most of its stem. What happened to your pipe? I asked as he filled it. A sniper, he said, shot it out of my mouth a few days ago. We both had a laugh. I noticed the carbine laying across his lap. I thought chaplains couldn't carry weapons. He smiled and nodded. If they're going to shoot at me, I'm going to be ready to shoot back. My section was down to eight men. We received two replacements. They showed up with their gear and clean uniforms. One was named Jackson's. One was named Jackson, but I didn't catch the other's name. Jackson had a lot of questions about the North Koreans and where we were on the line. Stay close to your foxhole, partner, and listen to him, I said. I didn't see them again until next morning. We'd been attacked again, but this time we were able to keep the North Koreans from our lines, but not without cost. Three men were gone, one missing and two wounded, including both replacements. We were taking casualties every night and soon could no longer hold our position. Later that night, we got orders to withdraw. Withdrawing in the daylight was bad enough. Now we are going to attempt it at night. So couple things you're going to hear a lot about this this chaplain Capon and well not, not a lot as you should um there's he's he's got his own story that needs to be told and about what he did in his service and then you know but I, I tried to pull out a few sections about him and then the fact that these guys I mean they're losing guys all the time you get two replacements and they're they're gone by the next morning. That's not a positive outlook on the situation. So they finally get the orders to withdraw. And it's funny, not funny, but it's interesting that they're actually not looking forward to withdrawing at night. Mm. You know, whereas me, my instinct is like, I'd rather go at night, right? I mean, of course. But you know what? If you haven't trained that way, because you can train even without night vision, you can train to operate at night. Mm. You learn the spacing that you need to get. You learn, you know, certain... Uh, maneuvers that you do at nighttime that are easier at nighttime so nighttime is not something to be scared of but these guys uh, I mean unless you haven't trained that way if you haven't trained that way man I can't even imagine what it's like because I trained so much in the dark I mean when I first got in the SEAL teams we did everything in the dark we didn't have night vision mm. you know we just did we just patrolled in the dark how we do we had closer spacing you learn how to use person silhouette in front of you you're you learn how to adapt your eyes to the dark mm. So there's all these things that you can do to make you a more formidable night fighter. Mm. But if you don't train that way, you you you're you're in big trouble. 
So these guys are starting up their withdrawal. Back to the book. Let's go, I whispered. I was nervous and wanted to get going before another attack. Walsh, standing by, looked over at me. Sarge, that's Johnson. He's dead. So he was he was kicking a guy on the ground saying, hey, let's go. And he's, you know, Walsh says, Sarge, that's Johnson. He's dead. I felt terrible. It hurt to see another one of my men dead in the mud. I didn't even know Johnson that well. He was another replacement, and I'd only just learned his name. The fact that I had little time to dwell saved me. Plus, I knew that if I showed weakness, my men might finally give in and feel sorry for themselves, and I couldn't have that. We needed to stick together. I became stoic and would remain that way for a long time. Again, he recognizes that his guys are looking at him. There's two points there. Number one, he recognizes that his guys are looking at him. And if he breaks down, he's going to cause breakdowns. And number two, the fact that he had little time to dwell. So what does that mean? Translate that to your life. If something goes wrong and you decide you're going to take a break Hmm. to reflect on that thing, don't do that. It's better. That's like get back on the horse. You know the old saying, like you got to get back on the horse. That's not only does that help you overcome the fear, but it's better than sitting around and dwelling on it. You know, even if it's something not physical that you're physically afraid of, still don't sit around and dwell. That's a bad. That's a bad thing. Yeah, like are you saying it? It gives you. Yeah, like you. Something happens, right? Girl breaks up with you. I don't know. And you take the day off from work, mm. right? When work, you get to sit down and look at the pillow that ponder. she used to sleep yeah, on, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's gonna jam you up way more. You go mm. to work, and you know your mind's occupied yeah, with yeah. all these tasks, and you know you don't have time to dwell. And meanwhile, I'll say this: your mind is still processing it, right? Yeah. It's not like it's not like you're at work, and so. You're not thinking about it. It's in the back and it's getting worked through. Your mind is doing its job, kind of getting a grip on the situation. And then you get home and like, instead of just going home, go train, go you yeah. know, go directly to the gym. You're actually kind of stoked because you're not have that pressure of your girl waiting on you at home to like hurry up and get home. Like, no, sure. so go train and get some extra rounds in. So yeah. go get some extra rounds in. Maybe stop by that little place on the way home, grab a little bite to eat, you know, with one of your buddies. Yeah. And then go home. And when you get home, clean your room. Yeah. You know, when you get home, finish putting together the bit, the bookcase or whatever. Yeah. Do something. Yeah. And now you're tired, and now you go to bed. And meanwhile, like I said, in the background, your mind's been processing this, and you're starting to realize, like, you know what? It's not actually that big of a deal that she left. Yeah, yeah. You know how, but isn't there the, I mean, I wonder why this, I'm sure you could kind of figure it out, but you know how something like bad or traumatic or whatever will happen, and then the person essentially ignores it. Or whatever, and f- focuses on work, focus on this, focus, on, and then people close to him or a therapist or whatever mm-hmm. would be like, "Hey, I'm scared. I'm concerned because you haven't like." Yeah, I think there's a dichotomy here. I'm mm-hmm. not talking about burying it, right? Yeah, yeah, that's not what I'm it. talking about. You still got to contend with it, and you know, at some point, I'll write down like the 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 protocol. The breakup protocol, sure. straight up, yeah. break, and the, and even like the death protocol. Like, mm-hmm. here's what you're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Now, in in these situations, they don't have time to do any protocol, right? Yeah, that's and since, yeah. So, so this, to your point, this can be a problem because if you're in combat and you lose someone, and then you never have the time to set aside and contend with it, mm-hmm. then you get back, and now you get back to America. And now you're with your family, and now you're getting a new job, and you're getting out of the military, and you're making all this stuff happen. 
you never contended with what had occurred. So right. yes, you are correct. If you don't ever contend with it and face it, then it can turn into a problem. Then it turns into what we talked about with Tim Ferriss, which is they tried. You, if you tried to bury it, you didn't realize it. It was a seed. Yeah. Right? So you seed. gotta you gotta make sure that it's not a seed that's gonna grow out of yeah. control in the darkness over there. You gotta you gotta put the, shed some light on it. Yeah. Cause, cause that's how, right? Like a lot of the time, like, oh, you, you know, I, you know, my girl broke up with, I don't know, whatever, like something traumatic. And then they'll be like, Hey, I don't want to think about it. I want to focus on these other things. I don't want to think about it. And they kind of bury it. Seems like that kind of happens yeah, sometimes. No, and that's what I'm saying. There's a balance that you have to do. Yeah. There's a balance. Cause you can't just bury it. Yeah. You have to contend with it, yeah. but you want to yeah. do it. You, what you don't want to do is go overboard and just focus 100% on I can't believe that this person's gone whether they died whether they broke up with you whether they what you know what I get little you know it's funny I get little warrior kid questions for the warrior kid podcast mm. of my friend is moving away how yeah. can I not be sad and it's like the same thing like yeah. people are gonna come in and out of your life yeah. and you got to learn to contend with it yeah. and and what I'm saying is don't focus on it a hundred percent remember it contend with it but don't dwell on it because we know what that gets you yeah. that gets you just down the the, the darkness the spiral of darkness which spiral. we don't want to go down no we don't want to avoid it because then it grows yeah behind your back yeah yeah well his situation is kind of different that's more of a small picture scenario where where it's like i don't have time to dwell on my right, guy who right, just right, this right. just happened to him because right now is there's yes. important things going and, on and Again, this is where people get jammed up because they never contend with it. They never mourn properly. Right. They never yeah. go through that process. And then they look up, you know, six months later and they go, oh, you know, I'm I'm sad. I miss my friend. It's like, yeah, that's okay. You know what? You got to take. That's why you, you should be able to take the protocol and just enact it when there's, you know, like you get home from deployment. It's like, okay, we're going through the protocol because we, we, you know. To, yeah. or you lose a friend car accident whatever whatever situation mm -hmm. you you once it comes time to enact that protocol yeah. boom you 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 press play on the protocol and then you go through the motions and yeah. that gets you gets you through it yeah or at least starts to get you through it because it's always going to be there right. like, it's not like you're going to be like oh you're always going to remember yeah but don't dwell don't dwell All right, going back to the book, it was another attack. And when I say that, he's actually talking about they're being told that they are going to attack again. And this is coming from his boss, Maccabee. The entire battalion is going to attack Hill 570. Three ridges go direct to the top of the hill. K Company will be on the left, we will move in the center, and I Company on the right. We will attack at daylight with no artillery or air support. Boo. Yeah, I don't like that. You don't like that. No. The second and third platoons will attack abreast, second on the right, third on the left. Richardson will follow with the 57s in the center. The first platoon will be in reserve. So there's your plan. Boom. There it is. What is abreast? Means side by side. Okay. Side by side. Yep. And now, so they're they're sort of going through and, and starting to enact this plan. And as they're doing this, one of his boys says, Sarge, we're getting out of here by dark, right? I knew the other men wouldn't speak up, but I could just look in their eyes and see they were scared. 
I just hope they couldn't see fear in my eyes. We're staying here until we get orders, I said, finally answering Walsh and Hall. I spoke up loud enough for the whole section to hear. Farther down the hill, mortar and artillery fire was heavy. We could see the North Korean positions and they could see us. I was hoping we were out of grenade range and too close for their, to their position for them to put mortar fire on us. Dude, what kind of situation are you in when what you're hoping for is that you're too far for grenade range and too close for mortars? Wow. Yeah. Oh, man. So that just puts you in machine gun range, basically. Unless you got some kind of dead space or cover, but not a good situation. But you know when that's what you're hoping for? Yep. Outlook is not good. That's your best option right yeah. there. Soon, instead of mortars, the North Korean soldiers started sending down taunts. We didn't speak the language, but each word had a charge. Silence. No one talks back, I whispered and put my finger to my lips. Not that we knew what they were saying. As the minutes and then hours ticked off, I realized that slowly but surely, we were moving back a foot at a time. A guy would reposition, and then the rest of the whole section would go off of him. At this rate, we might be off the hill by the end of the war. I knew one thing. There was no way we were staying overnight. So, situation happens. Um, they start They start actually, there's a fire, firing starts, and these guys actually start running down the hill, and then they start receiving small arms fire, and then he rolls into another position, and there's a guy in there named Valencourt who was another uh, experienced guy in charge of one of the other sections or one of the other elements. And he comes in, where's the executive officer? I asked Valancourt when I caught up with him. He was killed along with one of the other platoon leaders. The company has regrouped and tried to come back up the hill, but it was ripped apart by heavy mortar and artillery fire. We lost two lieutenants and two platoons took heavy losses. So that's that continues and again you got to get this book so you can get these details like not reading them all there's the, the detailed combat for anyone that's a, uh, in combat arms of any kind get, order this book immediately because there's so much good information in it that I'm not covering so these guys they're retreating from that attack they get to like an orchard situation and there's a colonel that's in charge of the regiment and this guy Maccabee, who's the company commander, he comes up and here we go. Maccabee's kind of talking with and brings Richardson over. Sergeant Richardson, Sergeant Richardson and his men were the last ones off the hill, Maccabee told Colonel Johnson. How are your men doing? The colonel asked, looking over my shoulder at the men finishing up their letter to Sears, this little joke that they had made earlier. Okay, but very tired. Johnson nodded and shook my hand. Try and get some rest tonight. He started to walk away. Frustrated with the attack, I knew this was my chance to speak my mind and the mind of my men. I wanted to know how many more times we were going to have to climb up a hill only to leave it and fight our way up another. From my point of view, we were just getting our asses kicked. How are we doing? It seems like we never make any headway. Johnson stopped. Sergeant Richardson, you tell your men they did a great job. Against great odds, we have stopped the North Koreans' main attack. I turned away and slowly walked back toward the men. 
I thought to myself how great Walsh, Hall, and Higley were. It was their courage and bravery that held us together. As I looked at them, it almost brought tears to my eyes. Johnson's news had an immediate impact on my section. We no longer dragged ass. Instead, we seemed hopeful, even optimistic. So, again, this is a good point that when you're in a leadership position, your little words have significant impact and you might not realize it. And I experience that a lot with leaders, not only in combat or in the military, but I, exp- I see that with leaders in the civilian sector mm-hmm. where they don't realize the weight that they carry. And this will even be like the CEO of a company mm-hmm. will we'll say something, maybe it's off the cuff and it's a negative thing and it has a negative impact, but they also don't realize how positive it can be when they say something positive mm. so if you're in a leadership position every once in a while every once in a while throw out some love to your people right yeah. I'm not saying you know Leif likes to use the word false cheerleading false. which is definitely yeah that's a that's a good term yeah you know which is hey you've done a great job when you didn't do a great job yeah and cheerleaders cheerleaders cheer pretty much no matter what that's just how yeah. this is what their job <laughs> is they're cheering you yes. hey good job even though you're down 47 to zero <laughs> Like they don't stop, right? No, I don't think they, they stop. Keep, no. They just keep cheap cheering. Keep cheering. So I guess you don't even have to say false cheerleading. You just say straight cheerleading. Well, yeah. Oh, I guess when they're when the team what, is winning, then yeah. it's, then it's, then it's positive, There's right? That. Yeah. So hey, let me ask you this about false cheerleading. So because mm-hmm. that came up in the muster, by the way, mm-hmm. um, someone thought that it was just set, like focusing on the positives and not the negatives. Then they were like, "That's false cheerleading," or they implied that that's mm-hmm. what. And Leif was like, no, false cheerleading is when you're cheering for someone even though they're not doing a good job. Yeah, or or making statements that are factually untrue. Right. Hey, Echo, you did a great job putting out a bunch of videos this last year. Yeah, Oh, yeah. that's actually factually untrue, and I wouldn't be able to say that to you because yeah, you yeah. put out a limited number of videos. Yeah, but if you were to say, hey, those are real quality and not quantity, like that would be factually true. That would true. be factually true, too. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, technically, that's an opinion. But, <laughs> hey, the okay, so what about this? Here's my question. So if, well, let's say, okay, I'm doing th- like this, um, you know, 60 percent of my workload mm-hmm. is great mm-hmm. and then there's 40 that's like hey you, you got to change this and then i sort of I, I sort of downplay the 40 you not me you like my boss oh, downplay yeah. the 40 just to encourage me yeah, whatever yeah, reason yeah. um and you really upplay the the, mm-hmm. the 60 is that false cheerleading it is but there's a little bit more strategy behind this because as your leader I wouldn't only talk to you one time, yeah. right? I'm talking to you over a period of time. So what my first comment to you might be something like, hey, Echo, that 60% that you're over there, you're crushing it out, that you're doing a great job, yeah. super. So you know, some of the other stuff, not quite there yet, but <laughs> but actually the first time I talked to you, I might be like, hey, you're, you're crushing it, you're doing awesome. Yeah. I'm not even gonna mention that 40%. Because I'm thinking, hey, if this guy gets encouraged, he's gonna be like, yeah, I'm gonna do a little bit more, right? Yeah, huh, and yet, yeah. that you just might pick up the sock, yeah. anyways, on your own accord, because you're just encouraged by the whole, the whole positivity that I'm giving you. Yeah. So that's cool, right? Mm-hmm. Well, maybe it doesn't work. So now I might have to come just a little bit more direct, right? Yeah. Hey, I noticed that you know this sixty percent over here that you're dominating, and it, it's awesome. Is there something with this forty percent over here that's different? That you know. That it comes because it seems to be like a different level 
and it's not up to your 60%, is there something that's different? Maybe I find learn something, right? right? But I give you the opportunity to say, well, yeah, it's because of this, that, whatever. Maybe we can correct it. And then if that doesn't work, then maybe I have to amplify or, or escalate a little bit more, Mm-mm. right? Mm-hmm. And then it's, hey, man, the 60% that you're doing while awesome, yes. it, there's, a, there's also that 40% that when I'm looking at it, I'm, I'm actually wondering if it's the same guy. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. for you to be able to do this over here, and still kind of throw this in the mix too. Yeah, it kind of yeah. just, make sense. yeah, it doesn't make sense to me. And I'm, I'm, again, my whole thing would be trying to figure out why you're slacking in that area. Yeah. Cause if you're doing 60% great, why are you doing 40%? They're, 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 let's hope there's a reason behind that. Yeah. And so once we find out what that reason is, it's like, okay. And so I'm going to slowly escalate and, and start until I get to the point, you know, if we go to six months, and I've done, and I've pulled out whatever obstacles are in your way, because there was some obstacles on the 40%. It was like, well, we weren't getting that information in time. Okay, well, now I start getting you the information in time. Yeah. And then you say, well, I didn't have the resources. Okay, well, then I throw you another person to help you, and mm-hmm. you're still slacking. Mm-hmm. So eventually, you know, I'm gonna have to come a little bit more direct and be, listen, man, the 60%, I appreciate. The 40% is actually starting to hurt us. Mm-hmm. And either you need to step it up, which is what I'm hoping, because I see nothing but potential in you, or, I might actually have to bring someone else in that can kind of handle 100%. You, right. you see where I'm coming from? Yeah, so, yeah. And it would even escalate from there. So, Makes sense. so yeah, there's, I don't think of things as black and white conversations. Yeah. Like, hey, I just need to go in and drop the hammer today because I don't. I don't. Yeah. I'd rather, I'd rather have you recognize it, right? right. I'd rather have you realize that, that there's a problem with that 40%. Now I might say something and just omit the forty percent. Like when I first talked to you, man, this sixty percent of this stuff over here that you're doing is awesome. Yeah, and I'm giving you the benefit of the doubt that you're going to straighten out that other forty percent, right? Yeah, get, get out your ruler and get it straight. <laughs> sure, of course, the ruler. But so okay, so technically, yeah. So your whole campaign, yeah, is not false cheerleading. Then no. So it's like, but, but let's say you just stuck. Let's say that for that first one, that's step one, right? And then yep, you got let's yep. say I don't know five steps. So if you just stuck with step one, I guess it depends on the reason too, right? So if yes. I'm like, hey, great, this sixty percent is awesome, and don't even mention the forty percent because I don't want any conflict with that guy or. I'm scared to, you know, confront them or I'm scared for that that conversation. Well, as what you should be realistically scared of is if you're doing, if you're busting your ass to do that 60% great and all I come in do is say like, hey, the 60% is good, but the other 40% sucks, I discourage you. Yeah. And now you're like, I can't do anything right for Jocko. So now you're, you're not even going to get your 60% right. There's a good yeah. chance that you don't even get the 60%. Now you're going down to 50% and then 40% is good and 60% is bad. Yeah. I don't want that. I want you to be on board with the program. Right. I want you to be like, oh, Man, I could work a little bit more and work a little bit harder and discipline myself a little bit better, and I could actually get seventy percent. And then let's see what Jocko comes in here and says when he's all fired up that I did sixty percent. Watch this. Yeah. So this is a whole thing. So dang, you could almost say, almost that false cheerleading. I guess okay. I was gonna say you could almost say false cheerleading cheerleading actually has its little spot in a, in a bigger campaign can be used in a campaign but i guess technically if it is it's by its very nature if it's part of a big campaign it's not false cheerleading it's just a maybe strategic strategic maneuver yeah strategic yeah. maneuver like just think of a little kid i mean let's just break it down to sure. to, to the fundamental realities yeah. of life a yes. little kid mm-hmm. if you take a little kid that does something okay let's say the kid tries to draw a rabbit 
Sure. And what does it look like? A mouse. <laughs> it looks like, like doesn't even look like a mouse. It barely even looks like a <laughs> stick, right? So if you say, sure. if, okay, I'm not going to use false cheerleading. Hey, kid, you're, that doesn't look like a rabbit. It looks yeah. like a stick. Yeah. Fail. <laughs> Is that kid going to draw another rabbit? He's not going to want to. That's not going to sure. want to. Yeah. If you say, oh, I really like that you try to can see where the eyes should go. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know what yeah, I mean? Yes. And they get a little bit, and they're like, oh, can I hang this up? Oh, <laughs> I'm going to hang this up on my refrigerator. Yeah. Huh? What? Yeah. what does that kid want to do now? Draw more rabbits. Do better. Yeah, you mean like, so yeah. yeah. Does that translate directly to adults? Oh, yes, it does. <laughs> oh, yeah. yes, it does. Does yeah. it always translate 100%? No, of course not. It doesn't translate 100%. But because there's some people that are, of course, there's some people that are just trying to skate and do the minimum. And if you yeah. say like, hey, good job, they're like, okay, cool, thanks. Right. Now I'm just going to keep doing whatever you told me. But if you're in a, again, for a strategic or in a campaign, we're trying to make things happen, it's like, yeah, you know what? Hmm. Hey, Echo, man, that stuff. Picture the first time you ever made a video. Yeah. Imagine if I said, you know, I mean, d- decent work, you know, not exactly eye grabbing though. Yeah. Would you have been excited to make more videos? Probably, mm, yeah, probably not. No. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you'd probably be like, oh, okay, well, whatever. I guess maybe this isn't for me, or maybe I won't make videos for this guy. Yeah, for this guy. That's yeah. what I'll But think. if I was like, oh, man, I really like the way that was some good effect. That was, you know what I mean? Yeah. Then you go, oh, yeah, I'm, like he's in the game with me. Right. All of a sudden, we're a team. We're not against each other. Yeah. So yeah. I'm just trying to unify things and bring things together. Yeah, I might even come back to you to improve myself more with yes. videos. Hey, what do you think about this? Yes. Like, hey, I had the, yeah, we're a team now. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to do it. My best leaders that I had, all I wanted to do was do better for them. They yeah. and they never they, they might give me critique, but it was like the kind of critique that makes you feel guilty about being alive. <laughs> yeah, <I laughs> where can, they're, I like, can imagine. they're like, they're like, I really, I really like this, you know. I wish. You know, if we, if we could do this a little bit more, man, that would be really nice. I'd be like, oh, <laughs> man, I wish I'd done better. Yeah. And then you have to also remember that people have different levels of sensitivities, right? Yeah. Because for you, like, especially when it's something that they deeply care about, yeah. when you critique them, there's almost no one that takes that critique well, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Oh, you want to tell me about, oh, you want to tell me about whatever. I did this drawing, like a little kid, right? The kid tries to do a good drawing. Yeah. You tell them that the drawing's no good, that breaks their heart. Yeah. Yes, it does. Evil. <laughs> yeah, man. So, you're right. Is that false cheerleading? No, that's no. part of a campaign plan. Yeah. Is it good if the kid draws a stick and you're like, that's the most amazing drawing I've ever seen? Well, now what's, this is to Leif's point. If you the kid draws a stick and it's supposed to be a rabbit and you go, that's the most amazing rabbit I've ever seen drawn. Now let me ask you this. Is that kid going to try and improve at all? No, and he'll probably not take criticism because they start used, getting used to like never yeah, having everything to, I do is know? great. Yeah. And I think that one applies more to adults yeah. because when you say that to an adult, like, man, that's the best thing I've ever seen. They're like, oh, yeah. Yep. They're can't, a little bit more egotistical. Yeah, can't they tell believe me it more. Yeah. 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 Little kids are like, well, like, kind of surprised if you tell them that. Plus, they wouldn't really believe you. They're like, <laughs> hey, look, I'm only six, but that's a stick <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. I tried to make a rabbit. <laughs> yeah. Like, I got, I got an ear on there, anyways. <laughs> Yep. After that, mm, don't know. Yeah, yeah, I could see that too. Yes. So, there you go. Meanwhile, back in Korea, yes. here's what's going on. They're under another attack, and as you can see, there's a little pattern developing. 
It's just we're getting attacked, we're getting attacked, we're getting attacked, we're getting attacked. That's what's going on. We could see the North Koreans pouring over the hill. The North Korean artillery fire followed K Company down the hill. The ground shook like an earthquake as the rounds walked towards us. I hugged the bottom of the side of the hole. All I could think about was a round landing straight on top of me. If that happened, I'd never know. I pulled my helmet and gritted my teeth. I was starting to lose it. Now, again, this is just continuing. They're continuing getting hammered, and Walsh comes over. He says, are we going to stay? God damn it, just stay in these holes until I tell you differently. I raced back to my hole. On the way, a young lieutenant ran by me. He was scared. He was so scared, his voice cracked when he screamed at me. Get out of here. Fall back. Who the hell are you? I barked. There were men still trying to get back, and if we left, they wouldn't have a chance in hell. So he's, his group is trying to provide cover fire for the groups that are now retreating. He didn't stop, and I never got his name he just yelled to fall back you're full of shit I yelled at him we can't leave here we have to help these men yeah this is he's keeping order in this retreat Mm -hmm. several other members of K company passed me following the lieutenant I saw some of my men getting out of their holes you sons of bitches get back in your goddamn holes I I yelled get back they scrambled back. Rounds started to crash around us again. I could hear the K Company men scream as shrapnel showered them, slicing into their skin. Larger pieces punched holes in their chest or sheared off their limbs. Their screams filled in the silence between the crashes of artillery shells. I was not going to be able to control this fucking situation much longer. Walsh just stared at me with a vacant look. Don't lose it now, I thought. Another barrage landed nearby. I put my head down. My ears started ringing. Smoke was down on the bottom of the hole again. The artillery fire finally stopped. The screaming for the medics began. Go check your men, I told Walsh, shaking him out of his stupor. I headed over to Hall's position. He had the same vacant look as Walsh. Men from K Company were moving down the ridge carrying the wounded. Everybody was bleeding or bandaged. I kept my men focused on the hill, waiting for the North Koreans to counterattack. But they never came. Neither did the artillery. It wasn't long, and I was told to withdraw off the hill. He talks about the Korean augmentation to the U.S. Army, or KATUSA program, K-A-T-U-S-A. So Korean augmentation to the U.S. Army. And this was like soldiers. He, He describes it here. Katusa soldiers were young men picked up in larger cities given a couple weeks training and assigned to the American units despite the language barriers the Koreans fell right in line with the rest of us when we marched they kept up when we fought they stood their ground too over the next few days we continued to attack to the west it was a knockdown drag out slugfest the North Koreans attacked us with abandon and tried to overwhelm us with numbers They were fanatical. One regimental commander said after the war that the North Koreans had no consideration for the loss of life. They have no hesitancy in losing 500 lives to gain a small piece of ground. It took us three more days to take two more North Korean positions. We uncovered large ammunition caches and killed 72 and captured 200. All at a great price. I lost two more men, and the company suffered a total of four killed with 13 wounded. The losses reduced our strength to around 53 men. 
but the enemy was now on the run and we held the river river line the morale went sky high so they kind of turned the tables a little bit as they went on the attack and the counteroffensive and then they're continuing to push and as they're as they're heading down a road all of a sudden North Korean machine guns started spraying the road they had us in the open the North Koreans had us pinned down and unable to push into the village which is what their what their objective was I heard the rumbling first peeking over the dike I saw three Russian made t-34 tanks I could tell they were t-34s because of the narrow turret that sat on top of the almost pyramid shaped body the tanks had led the charge against Nazi Germany in World War II. The T-34 dominated the German tanks because the Russian tanks could race over the deep mud and snow of the Eastern Front. After the war, the Soviets sold them to their communist allies. The North Korean invasion was spearheaded by T-34 tanks. The North Korean lead tank was almost on us. It stopped, and the main gun started to slowly turn in our direction. I looked at the road and saw a bazooka gunner jump out of the rice paddy, run to the middle of the road, stop, shoulder the tube, aim it at the tank. I thought this guy must have nerves of steel. It was a modern day David and Goliath. Wham! The rocket smashed into the tank and bounced off. The goddamn thing was a dud, or the gunner was too close and the rockets did not have time to arm. A burst from the tank's machine gun opened up and quickly cut the American gunner down. I scrambled down the muddy dike screaming at Heagley to get his gun up. Machine gun rounds from the tank's gunner sprayed me with mud. Go for the treads, I screamed. I watched Heagley's assistant gunner slide around into the 57 on his shoulder and tap him on the helmet. I slid to a stop and buried my head in my hands. I felt a concussion before I heard the round race by and hit the tank. The armored hulk tried to shake off the blast, but when it moved, I watched the tread roll off the wheels. The turret still worked, and I could see it move back and forth searching for targets. Staying out of the North Korean sights, I motioned to Walsh to get his gun on the second tank. In minutes, I heard another blast from the 57. Soon, the two tanks, unable to get there by their crippled mate, reversed and headed back to the village. Just taking out tanks with bazookas. Unbelievable. The next morning, we started out toward the hill in the village. A thick early morning fog hung low over the rice paddies. Visibility was zero. We were stiff, wet, and very anxious as we started moving toward the objective. Up ahead, I saw soldiers walk through the North Korean positions and continue toward the village. Climbing like the last dike, we ran up on a road covered in North Korean bodies. They were in a heap torn apart by shrapnel. Mules and broken equipment sat motionless nearby body parts were strewn on both sides of the road I saw men lying dead and still chained to the machine guns they were pulling as the fog lifted the sight became even more gruesome our artillery had caught them trying to withdraw the same scene played over and over again as we moved up the road into the village we didn't face a fight taking this position Every mile we moved north, my outlook changed. The whole section looked and acted more self-confident. When we got into a fight, we enjoyed it. 
The killing was quickly becoming revenge rather than necessity, rather than necessity to gain ground and drive the North Koreans out. We were still being killed, only now we were the aggressors and they were dying in their holes. I knew we were better fighters and had held them under tremendous odds. Now the tables were turned and they did not have the will or resolve to accomplish what we had in Pusan during the darkest days of summer. So the momentum's kind of changed and these guys are feeling feeling good about the whole situation. As they and there's something good, there's something that feels good about being on offense, right? Mm-hmm. Being on offense is is where we want to be. We don't want to be on defense. Mm. And this confidence continues as they continue to advance. Early the next morning, we were back on foot, advancing toward the North Koreans behind the three American tanks. We were receiving heavy, heavy artillery fire and tried to stay close to the tanks, hoping the army would shield us from the shrapnel flying through the air. One second, I was looking back to make sure Walsh's squad was keeping up, and the next, I was stunned. A shell landed on the tank, sending shrapnel and fire into the air. The explosion was deafening, and I stumbled back, dazed. Falling down in the tracks behind the tank, I saw the crew crawling out of the escape hatch. Machine gun fire was kicking up dirt all around me as I hugged the ground. I could see two tankers lying under the tank. They were wounded and couldn't crawl away from the hulk. Walsh, I screamed, help me get these guys. A couple of artillery rounds net landed on the road. I felt a sharp hop pain in my left shoulder. You all right? Walsh asked as he raced to my side. Yeah, I said, shaking my head, trying to reassure him. I didn't have time to worry about it. The machine gun rounds pinged off the armor as I crawled underneath the tank and grabbed one of the tankers by his collar. Pain shot through my arm and my shoulder felt hot and weak. I let go but hung on with my good hand. Walsh grabbed the other tanker and we dragged the pair into a nearby ditch. Medic! Medic! I screamed. So this, again, there's just like heroism after heroism after heroism in this book. And I brought, bring up some of them, but I don't bring up all of them because we just don't have, I'm not going to read the whole book. You got to buy the book. Continuing, I squatted down and tried to take off my gear and jacket so the medic could get to the wound because obviously he got hit in the shoulder. My left hand shook as I peeled off the shirt, now a few shades darker from the blood. The medic arrived with Walsh. He wiped away the blood with a wad of gauze and started to bandage the gash. It was on the backside of my shoulder and I couldn't see the wound. A few pieces of shrapnel, the medic said. You can move it, right? Probably nothing torn or broken. So now he's, you know, he's wounded. It's not too severe. Not exactly a good deal, though. Mm-hmm. You know, you think about you, you think about you're in, a, in an athletic competition, which is what this is. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, there's a massive amount of mental stress. And on top of that, you got to make decisions. And on top of that, you get you get a big gash in your shoulder. Mm-hmm. A couple days later, we were we sat overlooking the thirty eighth parallel. We'd pushed the North Koreans back now and awaited orders to attack. Sitting in my foxhole, I watched as the full moon began to rise. I got the feeling that there was something safe and secure as it washed gently over us. I felt like God was protecting us or surely trying to help. At least He'd kept me alive even though my shoulder throbbed. If only we were back home, we could all go to sleep under the moon's calming light 
and wake up safe to the warmth of the sun. Now that shoulder wound that he kind of blew off actually mm-hmm. isn't is not all that good. He mm-hmm. starts getting a little uh, starts getting a little infection in it. Passes out from it. I woke up this time. They carried me back to the battalion's aid station. The medics set the stretcher on a dirt floor. Doctor comes in. You're lucky. Had you waited any longer, the infection would have spread. Some time goes by. The next day, I felt fine. The doctors had me on a jello diet. So when the doctor came on, came on his rounds, I told him I wanted to leave. I need to go back to my unit, I said. Typical fashion the, uh, of the uh, American doughboy, the American grunt. They get wounded. What do they want to do? They want to go back. They want to go back with their team, and that's exactly what he, what he does. And a couple days later, he gets back with his unit. And of course, what are they doing? They're going on attack. And as they're going on attack, back to the book, all of a sudden there was a thunderous roar as an artillery barrage hit us. I was blown straight up in the air. My feet were over my head. I came down on my shoulder and my head. The mud softened the blow. Grabbing my helmet, I yelled for my section to run forward out of the kill zone. Three guys in front of me and two behind me were wounded. I could hear them moaning as they clutched their stomachs and legs. I checked myself. I had escaped without a scratch. Medics hurried to the downed men. I, I looked back and saw Heagley standing, dazed. Get moving, I yelled. He looked at me with a funny expression on his face and then looked down at his waist. He had been hit by shrapnel in the stomach. I could see the blood soaking through his fatigues. I'm hit, Rich. Get down. I said, and I hollered, Medic! Heagley fell to his knees and rolled over onto his back. I was torn. I wanted to run to him, but I had to keep the rest of the section moving. It was one of those choices that you never want to make. I saw the medics coming and turned to join the other men. Good luck, buddy. See you later, I screamed over my shoulder. I couldn't look back. But I knew I'd probably never see Heagley again. A stomach wound. I thought, Jesus Christ, I hope he makes it. I wanted to sit down and cry, but this was not the time or place for that. I had damn near lost a whole squad. There was only one way to go at the hill, so now they're trying to take a hill. There was only one way to go at the hill, and it was straight forward. I looked across the open space we were going to cross. There was little cover. This was going to be tough. There was no time to dwell on Heagley or our dwindling numbers. The longer we sat behind the railroad embankment, the tougher it would be to get started. Bromser was waiting to get artillery support. The same guys I had dinner with. I hope they remembered what I told them and come through. Leaning back against the embankment, I saw Allen and the Korean hustling across the field, each carrying two-pack boards with ammo. Get ready, Bromser said. I gripped my rifle and closed my eyes. My mind knew going forward was crazy, but I willed my legs to move. 
Soon I was running and leading the rest of the section across the paddies. Mortar and artillery fire crashed around me, but I didn't notice. I only saw the flashes of the North Korean machine guns ahead of me. I stayed close to Mac. I could hear him hollering to, at his squad to move. To my right, I saw that Walsh was right beside us. He had his squad moving. It all seemed almost normal. It was just another day, another attack. So you're getting mortar and artillery fire crashing all around you, but you're not paying attention to that because you're really paying attention to the damn muzzle flashes from the Korean machine guns that are right in front of you. When they, they, they end up pulling off that attack, and again, get the book so you can get some of those details. When the attack's complete, he writes, I was not a religious person, but I felt like one that day. I gave thanks with Walsh for our gift of life. After services that evening, we turned in our basic load of ammunition. Another sure sign that it was over. So, just to rehash that last little statement, they're turning in their ammunition because they're getting a positive feeling like they've been doing this good fighting, they've been on the pursuit, they were kind of on the defensive in the beginning, and now they go back on the counterattack, and now they're feeling pretty good, and now they, they get, hey, you know what? You can turn in your ammunition. Think about that. But back to the book, that night we got orders to move, but not home. We were headed north to the town of Usan. I was a corporal when we arrived in Korea. Now, less than 67 days later, I was going to be a master sergeant, the Army's highest non-commissioned officer's rank. The promotions couldn't have come at a better time. With the war winding down, I was sure this would be the last of the fast promotions. So he's actually, again, these guys think that they're doing a good job and they kind of think that things are heading in their direction. And yeah, 1950, I mean, we know just from history that this war is not even close to over yet. And yeah, but that's the way they're feeling. Mm. And can you imagine? I mean, he's, he's at the highest, he's a, he's, a, he's a master sergeant right now. 67 days he got promoted through all the ranks that's how many guys that's how many guys were wounded or killed oh, yeah. that they needed him to be promoted to run these uh, units so they now get sent into a position where they're holding a bridge and while they're holding this bridge he sends a couple guys out on a recon to take a look around and they come back and he says what the hell is that I asked him it's just an old glove and a shovel. It's all wet. It's probably been there for weeks, he said in a defiant tone. And that's one of the guys that were on the recon talking. That was on the recon talking. It didn't look like any glove I had seen before. It was large and padded. What else did you find? I shot back. Just some old positions, nothing to worry about. I was a little concerned now and continued to quiz him on how many holes there were up there. Around five or six, the sergeant said. Was the dirt wet or dry? God damn it, I don't know. It was pitch black. I'm telling you, there's nothing up on that fucking hill. The smug sergeant snapped at me. You can guess what's coming. You find a shovel up there, guess what's going on? They're digging in. That's what's going on. They're digging in. And these gloves, these kind of heavy gloves, um, you know, probably resupplied from the Chinese because that's why I didn't recognize them. Mm. So they hadn't really encountered the Chinese yet mm. that were about to attack in massive numbers. Back to the book. Around 4 a.m., the hill erupted. 
four machine guns from the high hills on the south end of the bridge opened up two guns cross-firing on each end of the bridge the tracers from the machine gun were skipping off the concrete like firecrackers my guys quickly manned the 57 recoilless rifle and got off a few rounds it did little immediately we started getting hit with mortar fire my radio was shot up and I tried to get the company on the landline but it was out too my mind was on my men I'd lost two in the opening barrage and I had lost track of the two men on the south side of the bridge this attack didn't make sense too much firepower for a few stragglers so he's again looking back to the recon report that he got it looked like the 4th of July fireworks as tracers skipped off the concrete, but I soon realized that some of the fire was coming from our left flank. Jesus Christ, it was our own company firing at us. So we got a little blue on blue going down, which again, for folks that are in the military, blue on blue is a real thing. And if you don't pay attention and you don't plan for it, it can absolutely happen to you. You know, Leif was saying that the other day. If you would have asked him before we went on deployment, what are the chances that you're involved in a blue-on-blue situation. Before we went on deployment, Leif would have been like, no chance, that would never happen to us. And during deployment, you know, there was there was the, I think we talked about three blue-on-blue possibilities. Well, one real, and then two possibilities in, the, in extreme ownership. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one is the opening story of blue-on-blue. One is Leif with Chris Kyle, who's getting ready to take a shot, and you know, Leif is basically getting asked, hey, take that guy out, and Leif puts the brakes on it, and it turns out being friendly U.S. Army soldiers. Mm-hmm. And then one where I got guys on the rooftop of a building, and there's a, a Bradley fighting vehicle that's wanting to engage it with 25-millimeter chain gun, and they're looking, they're reporting that they're looking at one building, but they're actually looking, and I'm, and all indications are, yes, you can engage. Those are enemy snipers on that rooftop. Take them out. Mm-hmm. But on the same block a few buildings down it was actually considered was actually like probably a couple blocks away Mm. was my guys and that gunner in that bradley that was reporting it he just got a little bit a little bit off on which building was which building oh yeah so he was actually pointing at one building and just thought he was pointing yeah so he he's looking through they have really good imagery on those buildings especially the thermo so you can see like white hot Mm -hmm. And he's looking at a building down this long street and he's reporting I don't I forget what the buildings were but the building he's you know reporting building 50 I got enemy enemy personnel on the rooftop mm. and my guys were in building 100 yeah. so he's asking does anyone have any troop you know any friendly troops in building 50 no no one has any troops in building 50 yeah. oh there's there's enemy with with uh, scoped weapons there and everyone's thinking hey this is the sniper that's been killing our guys by the way yeah. right Let's take him out. And then looking at 50. And what I actually told him to do, I was like, hey, before. And and the reason I I was heads up was because we had blue on blue. I knew that this was a possibility. So I said, count the buildings from your intersection up to the target building. Mm. And so then it just went quiet for a little while. And he comes back. He's like, stand by. Because he caught himself, you know, because you can see on the battle map, it's like, okay, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And that's what, well, whatever, he gets to 12 and he's like, oh, wait, I'm in the wrong spot. And he realized it. So he's like, uh, you know, so stood him down. But yeah, you don't want to be on a rooftop getting hit with 50 or 25 millimeter chain gun from a Bradley fighting vehicle. It's not going to be a good situation. No, sir. At all. 
And so the same thing's going on here. You got firefight going on at night. You got troops moving around, and these guys are getting lit up by their own men. All kinds of ways tactically to deconflict these things, but you have to pay attention to it. And one of the things you have to do is you have to have the humility to recognize that it can actually happen. Yeah. Back to the book. The Koreans were all over the place. Mac was hit worse than he thought. I could feel his back. It was drenched in blood. He started to choke. I talked to him, but he didn't answer. I laid him down and at the same time hollered to the rest of the men to pull in tighter around the road. I had four men left. Our two jeeps were shot up. One was on fire. I knew at this point we could not hold the bridge. Get the breach. Get the breach block from the 57 and throw it in the river, I yelled to my guys. So, so that's sort of like, that's like one of those, when you make that call right there, which is, disable our weapon permanently because mm. we're gonna not make it We don't want the enemy to be able to use this when they capture it mm-hmm. in a matter of minutes That's what he's saying is you know get the breach block out and throw it in the river And then of course the North Koreans attacked again and got within 20 feet before we stopped them I rushed to the other side of the road and got slammed to the ground from an explosion. Confused, I stumbled into a nearby ditch. My head was ringing. I checked Mac. He was dead. And so were the other two men on his side of the road. With only two men left, we had to leave the bridge. I shoved a grenade in the breach of the 57. The grenade exploded, destroying the gun. And we started pushing up the ditch away from the bridge. I couldn't see or hear anything. We had not gone very far when the point man told me someone was coming down the ditch toward us. I took a knee and readied my rifle. Hold your fire until they get closer, I whispered. The point man yelled quickly back. Sarge, there are our own guys. Two, Two of them from battalion. Come over here. What's going on? I barked at them. The men looked crazed. Both were talking a mile a minute, and I tried to settle them down. Look, take it easy, I told them. Slowly tell me what you know. The battalion got hit. They were in the headquarters before we knew it. The whole damn place was a mess, one of the soldiers said. They were dead and wounded all over. Everything was shot up. It looked like an artillery barrage made a direct hit. It was total chaos. What are you two trying to do, I asked. They said they were trying to make contact with someone. Sarge, I'm Taylor, one of Walsh's men. The other guy is from 1st Battalion. In the dark, I didn't recognize him. Where's Walsh? They're all dead, Sarge, Taylor said. So they make movement towards that battalion headquarters area, and there's still some friendlies there we stumbled into the battalion headquarters area and i introduced myself and asked jones what the situation was it was not good there were 30 or 40 wounded or dead doc anderson and the chaplain and are in the command post trying to take care of the wounded jones thought the battalion commander was dead they just walked in on them and shot up the whole damn place So at this point, they kind of ziggy out of there into a tree line. 
and we got into the wood line and threw ourselves to the ground completely exhausted and from there the chaplain moved on to another position but before he left he told me we were fighting the Chinese we'd heard rumors about the Chinese soldiers coming over the border that pretty much confirmed what I had thought for the last couple of hours Jones had basically told me when he mentioned that their quilted uniform jackets looked much different than the North Koreans first lieutenant Phil Peterson and Walt Mayo had also scrambled into our perimeter both officers were artillery forward observers but had lost their radios in the confusion they'd gotten reports hours before the attack that the Chinese were in the area the Chinese soldier soldiers had crossed the Yalu to protect electrical generators along the river that night Peterson had seen a Chinese prisoner in his quilted jacket but had no idea the danger we were in they'd been ordered back to the battalion and then tried to escape when artillery unit tried to save their own howitzers but the Chinese had already cut the road we were trapped for the rest of the day we set up our defenses we knew the Chinese would come for us that night so that's it right now they're they're surrounded and they set up a perimeter to the best of their ability and they got a bunch of wounded they're low on ammunition they're low on food they're low on water and for, so a perimeter is basically for those of you that don't know you set up 360 degree security perimeter you dig some foxholes you put machine guns pointing out it's your it's your last stand situation now it doesn't mm-hmm. always a last stand because when you're on a normal patrol you set up a perimeter anytime you stop you set up 360 degree security mm-hmm. And in this situation, that's what they're doing. They're set up their perimeter to the best of their ability with what they've got left. And then there's a little command post in the center of the perimeter. And here we go back to the book. Inside the command post, I knew what the officers were talking about. It was a forbidden subject. What were we, what were we going to do with the wounded in the terrible final mo- moment that everyone knew was coming? The battalion surgeon, Doc Anderson, and the chaplain were doing what they could for about 40 wounded men, but we couldn't hold out for long without a relief column, meaning people coming to back them up. And if we had to run, the wounded officers were going to have to decide whether or not to leave themselves and the other wounded men behind to the mercies of the enemy. And once he kind of hears that inside the center of the perimeter during the at the command post there he goes back out to his edge of the perimeter Mm. and here we go back to the book i saw a group of 20 men running right at us they were americans and were hollering and waving at us i prayed they they were the lead element of a relief column because of course they're hearing rumors that someone's going to come. There's there's friendlies on the way. That's what they're getting. They're kind of and it. I wasn't clear where they were getting those rumors f- from, or whether they were just assuming like, hey, we're here. Americans are going to come to get us. They've got to be sending a relief battalion. We just need to hang on. So that's what he's saying. I prayed that they were the lead element of a relief column. The other guys were cheering them on as they made the short dash to our trench. They slid inside their chefs chest heaving what unit are you guys from I asked second of the eighth an officer said between deep breaths 
The stragglers pushed by us and collapsed in the center of the perimeter. Everyone's morale sank lower than whale shit. The energy and excitement seemed to deflate from the men in the trench, and all at once their heads hung and shoulders dipped. These guys weren't a relief column. They were just more stragglers from the 2nd Battalion. I couldn't shake the thought that no one was coming for us. There's a soldier that he talks about, a Polish guy. I mean, American guy, but of Polish descent. Last name's Wallach. Later that day, so now they're in their perimeter. Later that day, Wallach sent for me. I walked across the west side of the perimeter and saw him standing near a machine gun position. He looked concerned and started pointing out towards what looked like an open field. Look over there, he said. I watched where he was pointing. I didn't see anything. I looked at him and shrugged my soldiers. No, keep looking, he said, this time staring intently. Then I saw it. A faint shovelful of dirt flying right into the air. The little bastards were digging a trench. There were about a half dozen or so digging a path right for us. Our machine guns had been keeping them at a distance, but when their trench was done, they could move undercover right up to the edge of our trenches. So that's a determined enemy. They're just going to spend all day digging toward you. Mm. As clandestine as they can, but they can only keep it so clandestine, and no one, they only, only one soldier noticed. Mm. Back to the book. Sunset was a bad time. Night always meant another attack. It started with a probe. A few Chinese soldiers would move up to the perimeter, followed by a short and violent firefight. Shortly after the probe, the artillery and mortar fire would start followed by the demonic ball of brass bugles and whistles as the Chinese infantry attacked. And now he's talking about his guys. The men looked at me with weary and tired eyes. All of us had scruffy beards and our skin was caked with mud and blood. None of the soldiers could look at me. They knew that they wouldn't survive unless they got up and fought, but they just sat there. They were not cowards, just frozen by fear. For some, this was their first taste of combat. Boys who overnight were forced to become men. I could only imagine the terror they must have been through, must have been going through. You've got two choices, I yelled. Get up and get to the line or I'll shoot you. That shocked them into action. I don't think they thought I would shoot them. I'd no sooner finished prodding the men out of their interior holes than one hell of a fight took place at the battalion command post. I knew there were mostly wounded soldiers there and I feared for Jones, the lone man on the machine gun, but I had my own problems. The bugles and whistles broke the silence and the Chinese rushed the east side of our perimeter. They came in waves straight into our fire. As quickly as they fell, more appeared. They moved into our fire like they were possessed. I raced from trench to trench, moving men where the Chinese concentrated their attack. When their attack on the east side slowed, they launched an attack on the west side. Although we were dug in, our casualties were mounting. I kept moving men to where the most Chinese were concentrated. The attack slowed down, but it was not long before they began an assault on the west side of the perimeter. Now they get this idea as these attacks are taking place. There's these trucks that were there 
kind of abandoned trucks and they figure it's nighttime if they can set these trucks on fire then it'll allow them to see the enemy mm-hmm. and so that's what they do they once one of these attacks starts they they shot the gas tanks and then shot tracers until all the vehicles were on fire when the Chinese infantrymen ran past, we could see them silhouetted against the light. It was a shooting gallery. We cut down the first wave only to watch the next ones climb over their comrades and keep coming. We mowed down the next wave, but they still kept coming. For the rest of the night, the Chinese came at us like waves to the shore. But each time we stopped them, they never reached the perimeter. The next morning, we took stock of our situation. Water and food were a problem, but ammunition and the wounded were our biggest concern. We had 85 able-bodied men left out of about 200. The rest were dead or wounded. We were also out of morphine, and the screams of the wounded were starting to have an impact on the rest of the men. I could see in their eyes a tired, haggard look. A relief column is coming for us. They'll get through today, I told the men as I walked the line. I said it over and over again, hoping to calm them, and, as I realized in hindsight, probably hoping to convince myself. I hope to hell I was right. Now, this is just a little report again about Chaplain Capon, and he... He gets a report, um, Richardson gets a report, and it says this, the doc said that when the Chinese got into the dugout, Chaplain Capon stopped them from killing all the wounded by surrendering himself. The Chinese took him and 15 of the walking wounded, including my old company commander, Captain Maccabee. What Capon did was heroic, stopping the Chinese. When he left, he was carrying Sergeant Miller. So Chaplain Capon, just once again heroic actions saving the lives of these guys before they were slaughtered by the Chinese by surrendering himself when I got back I organized about a dozen guys to follow me out of the perimeter and gather up some of the Chinese weapons and ammunition we were out of almost everything but lying in front of us were weapons and ammunition including much-needed grenades Before we left, I told the men to be careful because some of the Chinese might still be alive. It was gruesome business, but the only solution to our most pressing problem. Crawling over piles of dead Chinese, the smell was overpowering. At time, I could hear gas seep out of the decaying corpses. I could hear men behind me gag and throw up. Yeah, so this is like a, this is like, you you gotta sit around, you gotta, you got to imagine what this is like that they are the Chinese attackers are literally stacked and piled on top of one another and you're so low that you have to go out and gather weapons and ammunition from them and as you're doing that their bloated bodies are giving off gases and it's it smells so horrible and the whole scene is so horrific that your men are dry heaving and throwing up as you're trying to do this (sighs) 
Back to the book. For the rest of the morning, we passed out our new trove of ammunition and dug in deeper. As we worked, I heard the faint buzz of an airplane overhead. The spotter plane that had dropped bags of medical supplies was back. So I skipped over this part, but there was a they, they got some medical supplies from a little plane. And this time, instead of dropping supplies, it dropped the message. And this time, the pilot dropped it on target. Guru, Guru opened the message. That's one of the, one of the other guys, Guru. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. G-I-R-O-U-X. Garo. Open the message. I saw the color leave his face. I knew what the message said before he told me. We were on our own. No relief column was on its way. Our new order was simple. We needed to get back to friendly lines the best way we could. While Garou got the officers together, I gathered up a few of the sergeants and we had a meeting. Well, we are on our own. That message told us to get back the best way we can, I told the sergeants. Wallach was the first one to speak up. We can't just leave the wounded. What the hell else are we going to do, a sergeant I didn't recognize said. The meeting was tense. I realized that what I had been telling them was going to happen wasn't going to. No relief, no rescue. And if we stayed in this hellhole, we would all die. I don't think we can keep the Chinese out of the perimeter for one for more than one more night, if we can even do that, I said. There was silence. We were facing death, but bravery is a funny thing. It comes in all shapes and sizes and appears in men you would least expect it from. Most of us didn't know one another, but we fought hard together like we were blood brothers. What do you say about staying one more night? Maybe somehow they'll break through to us tomorrow, I said. Tomorrow, we talk about the wounded. Wallach nodded his head and looked at the others. I'm for staying one more night. Everyone quickly agreed. No one wanted to leave the wounded. I told Garou the way the men felt, and after he met with Bronzer, Mayo, and Peterson, they all agreed. No one was comfortable leaving our wounded or the wounded nearby in the battalion headquarters. The Chinese, that night the Chinese attacked three times, and three times we held, but not without suffering more casualties. After the last attack, I literally fell into a hole near the center of the perimeter. I was fighting a losing battle against sleep I could feel myself slipping away my body felt numb damp and heavy there was no noise no sound I was paralyzed and the harder I tried to move the more I felt the more my body felt like stone I tried to scream nothing I tried harder I couldn't make a sound bugles in the distance cleared my hazy mind I could hear the burp burp of Chinese submachine guns, but the co- but not the constant rattle of our own machine gun closest to me. I instantly got a sick feeling. I bolted out of the trench and crawled toward the machine gun position and fell into the hole head first. The gunner was wounded, and the assistant gunner was trying to put the gun back into action. There was ammo, but the gun was jammed. I racked it back. Nothing. The headspace was screwed up. The Chinese were the... Were the the Chinese were within 20 yards of us, and I was screaming for the men to keep firing. 
I pulled the gun into the hole and started to take it apart. I adjusted the headspace, put the barrel and chamber in alignment, and reassembled it. The A gunner, the, the assistant gunner, laid the ammo belt in and slapped the cover down. I racked the bolt back and pulled the trigger. The gun jumped back to life. The fire immediately had an impact and drove a wedge into the advancing soldiers. The first book, the first burst took out half a dozen. Some of the wounded and dead Chinese fell into our trenches. Others crumbled in a heap near the edge, close enough that we could reach out and touch them. I looked down and saw that the gunner was dead. The A gunner was hit in the arms, and I could see blood staining his fatigue jacket, but he kept firing his rifle and replacing ammo belts when the machine gun went dry. Just as fast as it started, the attack ended. There was some sporadic firing from the other side of the perimeter. A couple of guys close to the gun position came over to me and took over. As I headed back to my hole, I crawled over several dead American and Chinese. Every trench and hole seemed to be filled with wounded men screaming and crying for their mothers. Always their mothers. We had an added problem now since some of the wounded were Chinese soldiers. The dead were not a problem. We just pushed them out in front of the trench, but the wounded we had to help if we could. The medics did their best, but we barely had enough for our own men. The Chinese were all scared to death, crying and moaning. They were the enemy, but they were also soldiers just like us. And it was difficult to see them that way. The next morning, Bromser and Garot called me over to them. The two artillery lieutenants, Mayo and Peterson, were also there. Garot said what we all knew. We can't stay here any longer. There is no doubt in my mind that the Chinese will overrun us tonight, he said. We need to find a way out. Will, he, will you lead a patrol? Lieutenants Mayo and Peterson have already volunteered to go. I looked at the lieutenants and nodded my head yes. So they're going to try and find a way out of this perimeter. And they're going to do a little reconnaissance tonight or, or now to try and figure out their route so that then later they can get out of there and come up with a plan to get out of there. Back to the book as we and so they're crawling down a trench to try and look for the for the way out as we crawled down the trench Toward the east side word got out that we were going on patrol Peterson crawled by a badly wounded radio operator lieutenant Peterson. Where are you going? Looking for a way out he said Lieutenant Peterson the radio operator pleaded. Please don't leave me here. Please don't leave me You can't leave me here for them to get me Peterson looked shaken, and I urged us forward. I heard him say he was sorry as we crawled off. Others reached out to us, patted us on the back, and wished us good luck. As we moved down the riverbed, the Chinese soldiers grabbed at us and held out cups begging for water. I took my canteen and turned it upside down to show them that we had no water. So there's the enemy. They're also wounded, laying in these trenches. It's just a total bloodbath. 
and the Chinese soldiers are asking these Americans and you can, can you even imagine what these guys look like at this point they've been fighting for weeks on end they have no water they've had no food they're out of ammunition they're covered in blood I mean Richardson's actually wounded and a sorry state they're in you got the Chinese soldiers that are even worse state begging for water so these guys find a route and I don't want to make it sound like they found some easy escape route that's gonna work they found a possible way of getting out of this perimeter and when they get back they they come back and put out the word like okay this is what we're gonna try and do and it's Garo talking he says we move at 1700 before the Chinese move in Garo said word was passed to all able-bodied men they were told to make sure that they took what ammunition they had left I got a burp gun and some ammo the wounded men knew what was happening some broke down cried and begged us not to leave please dear God take us one soldier begged me grabbing at my shirt don't leave us to the Chinese others just watched in silence they knew they'd slow us down they also knew that they'd be dead soon they simply asked that we come back for them but I knew we were leaving them to die or worse get captured I knew my orders and agreed with them but I couldn't shake the feeling that I was leaving so many good men men who'd fought well only to be left behind to die I wasn't sure I could ever forget this this was the hardest thing I had done in my short lifetime this is your classic scenario of hey what do we do we do you know we leave no man behind so then what's gonna happen if they do that is everyone is going to die and they make the decision now we could have a theoretical debate on well maybe if they fought it out maybe if they stuck together maybe they could defeat the Chinese that are surrounding them Hmm. in my estimation this is wrong and you can see these guys already stayed longer they've already done everything that they can they're out of ammunition they're surrounded by Chinese the Chinese have unlimited number of men that are literally in piles around them and they know that if they are going to if anyone is going to survive then they need to make a break for it Mm. and again it's theoretical for us sitting here it's hypothetical we could say oh we'd stay and fight we could say whatever you want to say right now you're not in that position So now they leave at around five o'clock they start making a move a few hours into the march the rain turned into a downpour in minutes we were soaked to the skin the temperature was dropping and started and I started to shiver moving was the only way to stay warm I pushed on trying to get as many miles as possible between us and the old perimeter we were well behind Chinese lines and because of the size of our group it was likely that we'd be spotted soon now this is interesting 
trying to move with I think they said they had 80 able-bodied men maybe it's 60 that's a massive number of people mm. you can't hide 60 people it doesn't work mm. you can well I shouldn't say you can't it's very very difficult to hide 60 people like a platoon of 40 guys like it it's hard you know in the seal teams we have little tiny elements little tiny platoons of 16 guys yeah. you can find some terrain that will that will hide you mm. we work in squads with eight guys like okay we can we can find a place to hide when you have 60 or 80 guys mm. behind enemy lines that's gonna be a challenge I mean just think about where can you hide th- that many people yeah. like a perfect terrain feature a ravine you know something like that that's a lot of people to put in a ravine and just the noise discipline of yeah. people, you know, who, who's gonna cough? You get 60 people, someone's gonna cough. Yeah. I mean, just you and me sitting in this room and we notice when one of us coughs because, or when one of us grunts or whatever, mm. because we're recording it. Yeah. But you think about, you know, you and I sitting here for two hours, for three hours. I would say five times during that, one of us will cough, <laughs> right? And you gotta go edit it out. <laughs> sure. So if that's happening with two of us, you put 80 people into a ravine where they're trying to hide from the enemy and there's how many people are coughing you know how many people are are sneezing yeah. right and it's not it's not good odds and that's where these guys are saying he, he is Richardson saying look we have a massive group and it's not gonna be easy to uh, to hide back to the book we need to get moving to take advantage of the dark I left the house. They had been in the little house, speaking of hiding. I left the house frustrated. Sergeant Mayor from the battalion's intelligence section called me over. Let's get out of here, he said. You and I have a better chance to get back. This group is too large. We don't have the firepower to fight, and they're slowing us down. So here's a guy saying, Look, bro, let's just make a run for it. He was right. I knew that we'd probably make it back to friendly lines together. Breaking down into smaller groups would be better but I'd helped shepherd these men too far to turn my back on them, even if it cost me my life. Sorry, can't do it. Mayor shrugged and disappeared into the darkness. So, exactly what I just said. This guy made the decision, you know what? Now, going alone, that's not a good idea either. Mm. You know, because now you got no one to support you, you got no one to watch your six. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's just a bad idea. You can't, you're gonna need to sleep at some point and you're by yourself. What happens when you start snoring, right? Yeah. But this guy figured I got a better chance of doing this by myself, so I'm going to break out. Now, you could have given an order like, hey, everyone, there's something called escape and evasion when you just, everyone, it's basically every man for himself. Mm. You could do that, but at this point, Richardson is like, hey, we made it this far. We're going to, we're going to stick together. Back to the book, my group climbed to the top of a knoll. I could see the rounds hitting a mountain no more than five miles away. We were close. For the first time, I felt hope. Then the hail erupted with machine gun and mortar fire. I was knocked flat on my face. I quickly got up and just as quickly got back down in the prone position. The Chinese were shelling the hill. My lower back felt wet, and I could feel what I thought was sweat running down the crack of my ass. It wasn't sweat. It was blood. I was hit, but I didn't feel anything. There was so much smoke, dirt, and dust that I could barely see. I stumbled off the hill, followed by three others. 
There were about a dozen Chinese soldiers chasing us. I prodded myself to think and move. We started to head for a village on the other side of the road. Behind the village, I could see a massive rice paddy that ran up to a hill. I figured we could escape it if we got over the hill first. The paddy had about three or four inches of water in it. We stayed on the tops of the dikes and got halfway across the paddy before I turned to fire back. The Chinese soldiers dove for cover. When they did, we started running again. As I was running, I saw rounds hitting the water in front of me. It's not good. When we got to the other side, we got down behind the dike and started firing at the Chinese again. I didn't see anyone behind them. If we could take them out, we had a chance. But the others didn't have any ammunition left, and I was down to a few rounds myself. Get going, I said. I'll hold them off. They looked at me for a second. Go, I screamed, and turned toward the Chinese soldiers crossing the paddy. I fired a few shots and then dove behind a dike. A few seconds later, I fired two more bursts before I was out of ammunition. Between bursts, my mind was searching for an escape route. I knew that if I ran straight up the hill, I didn't stand a chance. About 30 yards to my right, there was a house. A woman and a baby were crying and wailing in a dugout near the hill. I went into the house. If I went into the house, I was sure the woman would tell them. But I couldn't stay behind the dike with no ammunition. Jumping up, I ran behind the house and started up the hill. I tried to keep the house at my back, hoping to mask my movement. I went as far as I could go without the Chinese seeing me and then dove into a large bush. Rolling onto my stomach with my Chinese burp gun underneath me, I waited. I had no ammo, but I had a death grip on the weapon. It was like my security blanket. I could hear the Chinese soldiers climbing up the hill. They were yelling at one another. I was trying not to move, not even breathe. A fly hovered around my face, landing on my nose and mouth. I tried to keep my mind closed to everything. I closed my eyes as they passed and took my first breath as I heard their yelling behind me. In a few minutes, I was sure they were gone. But every unit has one. A straggler that can't keep up. The Chinese straggler was so slow that when he got close to the bush, he saw me. I never moved and just shut my eyes. He started to holler and drove his bayonet into my butt. I felt the tip hit the bone. When I opened my eyes, I saw boots all around me. My mind went to the burp gun. If I rolled over, holding it, they'd shoot me for sure. I shot my arms out along the ground and rolled over, leaving the burp gun in the mud. They reached down and jerked me up. The barrel of the pistol looked like the business end of a 105mm howitzer. A Chinese officer with red piping down the side of his pants had the pistol pressed between my eyes. He was screaming at me in Chinese and pointing up the hill. I was numb and couldn't speak. I lifted my shoulders and let them drop. I thought of this moment many times. And I know that if he pulled the trigger, I would never have known it. That would have been the end. 
I'd been captured now and I had no idea what to do at least when I was on the run I knew where I was going even fighting for my life was easier than giving up all control I was now at the mercy of the Chinese so there you go uh, captured fought until he's literally out of ammunition and there's nothing else he can do hmm. nothing else he can do ends up they muster some other guys that got captured they muster them all together now we're going back to the book there were about 10 Chinese guards they lined up us they lined up beside us and moved us down the road a couple hundred yards suddenly the one in the lead started yelling and the whole column stopped the the guards grabbed us and made us kneel down in front of a ditch I could hear one of the soldiers barking what sounded like orders in Chinese my mind went on full alert they were going to execute us I felt the guy next to me shaking and another started sobbing my god this is it this is one of those situations where you expect to see your life flash before your eyes I was ready to relive relive scenes from my childhood good times in Austria anything to take my mind from Korea and this ditch it didn't happen to me I just closed my eyes instead of shots I heard laughing they motioned for us to get up the guy next to me was so emotionally drained that he couldn't get up I tried to help him but my hands were tied behind my back get up I yelled don't let them laugh at you get up they get to like a little building and they'd been carrying captured rifles this whole time so they get to a little building and back to the book the Chinese dropped the pile of rice on the ground and motioned for us to eat it the prisoners rushed in and started fighting over the grains I staggered back from the melee and angrily watched we'd been turned into animals after all we'd been through why were why were the others not helping one another instead they pushed and fought I refused to join in we needed leadership and control more than ever and I was going to begin leading by example so they go to they get some initial interrogation of course you know that mock execution horrible and then he moves into the next chapter which is called death march we started north up the road at a good clip the guards circled us like sharks sharks pushing stragglers with their rifles hitting and kicking anyone who stopped many in the group were wounded one man had a massive chest wound it was covered by blood-stained bandages he wheezed as he shuffled down the road my shoulder was a little stiff and the shrapnel in my back was wet and sticky but I felt lucky it was nothing in comparison so yeah next time you're thinking you have a rough day how about you're a prisoner of war on a death march and you've got a massive chest wound so now one of these some of the Chinese guards could speak English and here we go pick up the wounded 
he kept saying in like a broken record guards started pushing us back toward the back of the formation on the ground were about 20 soldiers on jerry-rigged litters made out of burlap bags attached and stretched between poles 10 more soldiers stood around them pick up the wounded the officer barked again it took four of us to carry one litter I grabbed the closest litter and hoisted it up the soldier in the litter had a horribly mangled leg. His calf muscle was long gone, and his foot rested on the inner limp, on the litter, limp and lifeless. None of the wounded men had seen a doctor since being captured. I heard someone say they'd been in trucks, but were dumped on the road when the trucks were needed elsewhere. A whistle sounded, and we started to shuffle toward the men. None of us were strong enough to carry the stretchers very long. My shoulders burned. I tried to focus on each step, left, right, left, right. Whenever things got tough, my mind wandered back to the guy with the sucking chest wound, or I stole a glance at the guy on the litter with a mangled leg. I vowed to never quit. But soon, my body started to break down. I tried to get another prisoner to relieve me, but everyone I asked looked away or moved ahead. Most hid in the dark, trying to stay as far away from the stretchers as they could. You son of a bitch, I barked at one soldier who almost jerked away when I asked. I was disgusted. It reminded me of the soldiers that first night fighting over the rice. We'd forgotten that the backbone of any military was the bond of the soldiers. We fought for the guys to our left and right. That is why we fought, to protect our unit buddies. And we expected them to do the same. But on a death march, every man was an island. There seemed to be no place for anything else. I refused to be that way. It's a heavy burden. Each night, the guards were getting tougher. They were constantly pushing and hitting men with their rifles. If a man fell behind, he was shot and pushed off the mountainside. Everyone was rapidly losing weight. Lack of food, wounds, and dys dysentery were taking their toll. Carrying the men on stretchers was becoming even more difficult. We looked like skeletons. Our uniforms hung off us like a scarecrow's quote, coat. Each time, we got topped, each time we topped one of the mountains, we faced another one. Ears, nose, fingers, and toes were becoming numb. At times, I felt like I was walking on my ankles. I was lucky that my legs had always been the strongest part of my body. Many of the wounded men who were strong enough to walk earlier were now in the need of stretchers. However, there were none, and we found ourselves carrying them along between two of us. In some cases, we were practically dragging them. When I heard a single rifle shot back down the road, I knew another man's struggle was over. My heart was aching for them, but at the same time, my mind kept telling me to move. We had two choices, march or die. My survival mode kicked in not allowing me to surrender to pain and fatigue. The guards shoved us into a cluster of huts, so after walking a long time, they get, they get to like a little village. We were jammed into the room so tightly that my legs rested on another soldier. The only thing good about sleeping this way was that we were warmer. A cold front 
from the plains of Manchuria came roaring down and slamming into the very mountains we were struggling through. We were facing the coldest winter in 50 years. As we got ready to move out, the commander of the guards told us to leave the stretchers. The wounded were pleading with us to take them. I started to move toward one and got a rifle butt in the gut. Others tried to grab the stretchers, but the guards pushed them away too. I started to move toward the helpless soldiers again, but couldn't risk another blow. I let my mind drift into a zombie state, hoping to block out the screams of the wounded. Left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot. Over and over again, I repeated it until I couldn't hear their screams. Yeah. Absolutely horrible. Just absolutely horrible. After 10 nights, we marched into a fairly good-sized town. And this is when he decides that he's going to try and escape pretty early on and he's got a couple buddies and there's some confusion and there's some chaos that that happens as they're trying to round up the prisoners and he kind of jumps over with a couple of the guys into a little ditch and they cover up with some branches and they start talking these three guys start saying look what you know can we make a move well let's you know let's head south and then finally one of the guys says that would be suicide in our condition we won't make it over those mountains we don't have warm clothes and we will probably die of hypothermia we knew he was right it was smarter to wait until springtime we needed to try and survive and hope our forces liberated us Now they're starting to get into like a little bit of a routine. My goal is to bring back discipline and start acting like soldiers again. The scene the first night with the rice dropped on the ground was burned into my brain. The only way we could survive until spring was and a possible escape attempt was to start working together. The sick and wounded suffered the most. Our frostbitten feet had turned to trench foot, and open wounds were infected or gangrene had set in. For those guys, it was only a matter of time before they died since we had no medicine to treat them. And finally, from his little group, he loses a guy whose last name is Graves. Graves was the first to die. The valley had turned into one of death and suffering. Soon after Graves' death, Chaplain Capon came to the house. We were all surprised to see him. I had last seen him at Usan, but when he walked in, I barely recognized him. The man I'd met on a ridge in Pusan was gone. He'd lost a lot of weight, and his uniform kind of hung on his frame. His tired and worn-out eyes belied his warm smile. 
Dupont told us who is dead or wounded. Before he left, he told us to get organized. We'll need to take action when the troops show up, he said. Have a plan. When the troops get close, the North Koreans might try to kill us all. Capon never came back to my house, but he continued to visit troops in the valley. I know he prayed for each one of us when he could, brought food to the starving until he became so weak that the guards took him to the hospital. And we're going to hear about what that hospital consisted of. He died of pneumonia in May of 1951 and was buried in a mass grave by the Yalu River. And if you don't know the story about Chaplain Capon, he was awarded the Medal of Honor for his actions in the Korean War, and I'm sure we'll cover that in more detail at some point on this podcast, but in the meantime, you can look it up and read about a hero of war and a hero of faith. At one point, Richardson tries to steal some kimchi, and again, now I'm, I'm fast-forwarding a bit to where to where they're a little bit more settled in, and he he steals like a bowl of kimchi and they start the guards go all nuts and they're trying to find out who took the kimchi who took the kimchi and they they threaten him with hey no one's going to be able to eat until we know who took the kimchi and finally he breaks down and says i did it only me now it was the officer's turn to shake his head you lie more do it no only me and the guards i said The little son of a bitch looked at me and then nodded to the guards who grabbed me and tied my arms behind my back. You learn lesson now, the officer said. The guards threw a rope over an open truss and pulled me up by my arms until my feet barely touched the dirt floor. The pain was excruciating. I could feel lightning jolts of pain in my left arm and shoulder where I still had shrapnel wounds. The pain quickly crept up my arms, driving straight to the top of my head. I gasped for air. The pressure on my chest allowed me to take only sharp, short breaths. I could hear myself moaning, and once I cried out in pain before I passed out. I woke up on the dirt floor. I could barely feel the guards pulling the ropes off my arms. I could hear the son of a bitch rattle off a few a few orders. He sounded far away, but I could see his boots and knew he was standing over me. The guards dragged me to my feet, throwing open the door. They tossed me on the floor of my room. I could barely move my legs and arms and stayed where I landed the rest of the night. Martin helped me get comfortable and told me that the house had been fed earlier that night. He had no idea how long I'd been strung up. The next morning, I sat up and started making jokes. Some of them laughed with me. Others were just scared. Laughing hurt my ribs, but it was the first time I'd done it since Usan. I was determined to keep my sense of humor. I was tied. It was tied to my will to live. From that point on, I remembered to laugh whenever I could. Well, I guess we won't be having kimchi anymore. (sighs) After two months in the valley, the guards marched us out of the valley and back up to the road 
in Pyeongtong. So they're in a different location now. And in this location, the Chinese finally full, fully take over the operation of the camp as opposed to the, the Koreans, the North Koreans. So now the, it seems like the Chinese were a little bit nicer to the prisoners. The Chinese issued each of us a small drinking cup along with a bowl for our millet or our maize. No more eating out of a helmet liner. We were also allowed to start a cookhouse for each company and we were occasionally given soybeans. The wells were contaminated from animal and human feces seeping through the ground and into the water well so we didn't have fresh water. There were about 3,000 men in the camp. Conditions were about as bad as a human being could possibly live with. So again, I pointed out that the Chinese were a little bit nicer because they gave them like a bowl, but it's a, don't get me wrong. This was about as close as you could get to Andersonville in the Civil War, which that was a, a, a Confederate prisoner of war camp for Union soldiers. And there was about 45,000 soldiers that were captured and that were in that prison camp about 13,000 of them died from scurvy and from from diarrhea and dysentery so you know it's funny we think of like diarrhea first of all we think of it as like a joke and then we think of it as like an inconvenience but mm. when you're in these situations it kills you mm. back to the book we were full of lice the farm boys told us we were ho- it w- they were hog lice growing larger every day on our blood. While the lice got fat, we starved. The guards brought us two bowls of millet a day and one bowl of boiled water, which barely kept us alive. And even when we ate, dysentery kept us weak and dehydrated. Hunger can do some strange, strange things to your mind. I was at the latrine a slit trench, and I noticed that many of the soybeans were passed whole. I thought if I picked them out of the feces and washed them off, I could eat them. Then it dawned on me that I must be going crazy or turning into an animal. It would be a few days before I was able to get over the fact that I had let myself sink to a disgusting thought like that. So, next time you're feeling hungry, you're not feeling hungry. You don't even know what that feels like. They ended up, uh, like, f- forming a little group. And he just mentions this, this one guy in this group named Vincent Doyle. Doyle became the leader of this little group. An infantryman during World War II. He had a wife and a son in Fall River, Massachusetts. He received a battlefield commission in France and left the army as a lieutenant. He opened up a frozen food store in Fall River. A little ahead of its time, not many families had freezers. He went out of business and re-enlisted as a master sergeant, not an officer. He was an inch too short to be an officer, the army told him. <laughs> yeah, that's one of the reasons why I left that in there. Is like The guy's just humble, like, oh, I can't get as an officer anymore? Even though I got a battlefield commission in World War II? Oh, that's okay. I'll just I'll just enlist. That's no no factor. That's that's like the humility. I don't know if you see that kind of humility anymore. 
Normally I don't make a big deal out of the generational differences, but that's a pretty humble guy right there. Back to the book. Our biggest problem was our physical condition brought on by the march. Men with open wounds, many with gangrene, didn't survive long. Some were saved from gangrene by maggots eating their dead flesh, which only meant they suffered longer. I mean, we've been through that before with the Forgotten Highlander, who they would actually put maggots to get rid of dead flesh to try and save themselves. Some of the soldiers had black feet from frostbite and trench foot. I watched while one man pulled rotted flesh off his toe bones. The soldiers from the 2nd Infantry Division had it worst. They'd been issued shoe packs, rubber boots with felt liners and insoles. Their feet would sweat and they were continuously wet while marching and they would freeze when they stopped marching. Since they never took off the shoe packs, the soldiers got trench foot. It's easily understood when men die of wounds or pneumonia. It is more difficult to understand when men just lie down and quit. I've seen strong men seemingly just give up and die. First they would stop eating and stare with blank eyes at the mud walls of the hut. Their minds were gone and life just slipped away. Then, after a few days, you heard an all too familiar death rattle. We were dying at a rate of about 30 a day. Each morning we took out the dead, stripped them of their clothes, and stacked them like cordwood in a pile. At first we tried to take the uniforms and coats and give them to other prisoners, but the Chinese guards wouldn't allow it. What they did with the uniforms is still a mystery. I hated being part of the burial detail. The physical part was bad enough, but the mental part was much worse. Thoughts about the families of the dead men and if they left children behind who might never know what happened to them. I knew from listening to men talk that what bothered most of them was the thought that they might be next. That's one thing I never let my mind think about. And again, he moves around a bit to various places and various camps and gets various jobs. And again, you have to read this book to really comprehend this the level of suffering that was endured by these prisoners. Back to the book. In early spring 1951, the Chinese were building small docks on the river, and I was unlucky enough to be put to work on the crew. A group of us were carrying one of these timbers up a hill when someone in the center stumbled stumbled, and the timber fell, pinning me to the ground. And when that happens, his back gets jammed up. And, th- and even though he makes it through that day, it starts getting worse and worse throughout the day. Now, there's a, a hospital right it's a hospital but they actually called this the hospital it's just like every other prisoner camp that we've heard about when you go to the hospital you're dead mm-hmm. that's just the place they put you to die and it's the same thing here so his guys are trying to prevent him from being taken to the ho- to the hospital mm-hmm. so they're carrying him back and forth to their formations and finally the chinese realize that he can't walk so the chinese come to the door and Back to the book, they were taking me to the hospital. We called it the morgue. We had never seen anyone return from there. I wanted to fight back, but I couldn't. The guards closed the door 
to one of the rooms in the cluster of houses that served as the hospital and threw me in. It was dark and I could not see anyone. I landed on top of the wounded and sick lying on the dirt floor. They immediately started kicking and cursing me. The stench from the wounds and the human feces was unimaginable. I started to gag. So this is, I mean, this is just, the, the, I don't even, I can't even imagine anything is going to be worse than the situation he's in now. He's put in this giant room filled with shit and wounded people that are going to die. And by the way, it's like they've got dysentery and they've got diarrhea, so it's just a total nightmare. And he's trying to maintain a little bit of dignity, and he asks one of the guys in the room, where's the, where's the latrine? He had to use the restroom. And the guy tells him, out the door, go left to the end of the building, left again in 25 yards on a knoll, you'll find the latrine. The temperature was freezing, but I welcomed the fresh air. I dragged myself out on my buttocks, pushing myself along with my hands. I reached the latrine, a trench a foot and a half wide and 10 feet long. The trench sat just outside a strand of wire that separated our camp from the black prisoners. The human waste was like pudding and almost reached to the top of the trench. I managed to get my pants down and had worked my way to the edge when the side caved in. I fell into the trench, finally catching my shoulders on the edge. The waste was at my chin as I clawed at the dirt, trying to pull myself free. My legs, paralyzed like an anchor, pulled me toward the bottom. I yelled out and kept clawing, but every second I slipped deeper and deeper into the trench. Two black prisoners on the other side heard me. They crawled through the barbed wire, grabbed me by my arms, and pulled me out. A second later, and I would have slipped under the surface. The guards heard all the commotion and were closing in. My saviors scrambled back through the fence just as the guards arrived. To this day, I have no idea who saved me. Fearing I was trying to escape, they started to beat me with their rifle butts. I covered my head to try and protect myself. As I lay there, covered in shit, I lost control of my bowels. That was it. I was done. But giving up meant death. I had lived with death every day since coming to Korea. The battlefield was like a movie and fast forward. There was so much going on and I couldn't dwell on death very long. Call for the medic, possibly hold the wounded man in my arms or say a word or two as he passed from life to death. It was different as a prisoner. I had no way of defending myself other than using my mind and what physical capabilities I could muster. I realized my mind had to be my strength. For a split second, all of the pain and suffering could have ended. No, my mind screamed. I could not give up. I'd come this far and in that second I set my mind to doing something no one had done. I was going to come back from the morgue. As the Chinese soldiers landed blow after blow on my back and legs, I banished death from my mind. Never again did it enter into it.
many lost control of their minds and did things they would never have done under normal circumstances I didn't know what to say when I heard stories or saw things where men were mistreating one another I thought of the first night of captivity when the Chinese dumped the rice on the ground what happens to men when they become prisoners why do they change from helping one another and becoming and become totally engrossed in themselves with totally selfish outlook on life understand I'm not talking about all men but many never come to grips with losing their freedom they feel abandoned by their country and are no longer longer with men they trust in their minds their personal survival becomes paramount and group survival no longer matters so again I mean going back to that part at the latrine that's a little that's a little footnote you can put in your brain for the rest of your life because we're all gonna have bad situations I get it I mean there's gonna be horrible things that are gonna happen I don't know if there's much I don't know if it can get much worse than the situation that he was in right there and and realizing that his mind was his strength realizing that he had no other way to defend but his mind had to be strong and he had that little split second thought that he could give up and just let it all go just let it all go let that pain and suffering stop but then he realized no not gonna do that not going to surrender not happening So, eventually, I mean, he goes through more hell and eventually gets on a two crutches and then one crutch and eventually he makes it. He makes it out of the morgue and he gets sent back with the rest of the rest of the team. And when he gets back, and they're like completely amazed. This is a guy that they they probably mourned his death because they thought when you go to the morgue you're dead. And when he gets back, he's with Doyle and Smoke. These are his boys, Doyle and Smoke. S M O A K. Welcome back, Doyle said. Since no one had ever come back from the morgue, the guys peppered me with questions about his treatment. What treatment, I said. And they all laughed. I told them we never received any medicine. Got less food and the room smelled like a cesspool. I told them how I'd almost drown in the trench and that two guys from the black compound saved my life. It was a shitty situation, I said. (laughs) And again, they all laughed. So this guy does a great job of trying to keep keep track of that humor. Mm. Continuing, since I'd been in the morgue, the Chinese had started putting a lot of pressure on us. We were required to spend hours in lectures and discussion groups supervised by Chinese political officers. This is when their indoctrination is taking place. Doyle explained that the political officers began by breaking you down physically, so you started to agree with them and then just, just to get them off your back. When this happened, they would be on you full force pushing you to make a statement against the United States government or to make a statement as to the next wonderful treatment that you're receiving. Next, you'd be one of the turncoats standing up on stage giving a lecture. So they're going through this, even though they're getting trying to get propaganda statements out of them, they're still getting treated horribly. We were still dying in great numbers. 
It had just been removed from our site. They also tried to improve our diet. Prisoners even started to make steam bread by taking balls of dough and placing them on a bamboo rack over a pot of steaming water. And one of the one of the uh, leaders, I just had to note this one, uh, one of the interrogation propaganda communist leaders said, I will leave a hundred men to die to save one progressive. Meaning communist. And they spoke English. Those are the words that they used. Uh, Chinese interrogators, propaganda people spoke English. And he says, we outwardly challenged the loss of individual freedom under their system. The Chinese became quite agitated. And I like this part. <clears throat> so they're, again, I mean, I don't want to say that they're getting the treatments good by any stretch, but it's at least a little bit better. And it's part of it is them trying to convince them to, you know, be communists so they can make statements against America and do that whole thing. Mm-hmm. So they, here's, here's this uh, one part. Despite working many hours building the longhouses, we were still required to attend le- lectures. And once a Chinese acting troupe came to town. It was their version of a USO show called The White-Haired Girl. The storyline was simple. A peasant family could not pay the taxes demanded by the dastardly landowner, so he takes the peasant's beautiful young black-haired daughter as his concubine. She suffers terribly under his demented demands, but eventually escapes to the mountains. Years later, as the People's Liberation Army frees the people, the girl returns to the village but now her hair has turned completely white. The play was well done, and the Chinese officers and soldiers hung on every word. They saw the girl's story as their own. They clapped when the People's Liberation Army arrived. The play, of course, omitted the fact that Mao had killed thousands, and I'll correct him there, millions of people in his drive to take control of China. And this is why I read this part, because he says, we laughed and cheered when the landlord dragged the young girl away. (laughs) The Chinese guards were not amused, and for days there was an awkward silence. (laughs) I kind of got a kick out of that. A bunch of rambunctious prisoners of war ruining your little play. When it got warm enough, the Chinese let us stake out a baseball field near the river. We didn't have any balls or bats, but we went through the motions. We made teams and selected umpires. We called balls and strikes. It sounded weird, but we had a lot of fun. We spent hours out there. And then he goes on to tell this story. Late one afternoon, I kind of, when I read that, I was like, mm, that's kind of interesting. I mean, I could see where you'd do something to entertain yourself, but they had a little bit of a bigger plan. Late one afternoon, a lone American fighter jet came screaming down the river. We were out on the ball field. At first, it scared the hell out of us. It went by us in a flash, but doubled back and flew straight down the river. We could see the pilot looking down, and as he passed, the pilot waved and wiggled his wings at us. There were no words to describe how that incident made us feel. God bless him. He probably never knew that's what that simple act did for us. It was a very long time before we stopped talking about it and we'd achieved our goal with the ball field. The Chinese refused to identify POW camps, but the ball field did the trick. Yeah. Soon after winter set in, so now they're going another winter, I got sick, started running a high fever, and was coughing up green and yellow mucus, doyle and smoke, moved me near the stove and kept me hydrated with hot water. A medic told me I had pneumonia. I thought of graves and was grateful that I wasn't still in the morgue. 
After a couple days, the, fe- the fever broke and I got better. Doyle and Smoke both said they were sure I'd make it. Yeah. Yeah, Rich. Some of us thought we might need to dip you in the shithouse again to make you better, is what Smoke told him. In early spring, my legs were finally in shape to begin thinking about escape again. Dude, when I read that, I just wrote the words long game next to it. I mean, bro, can you imagine? You're three years deep in prison camp, and the whole time you're thinking, well, if I can just take the next year to get my legs healed up enough where I can walk, then I can try and escape again. Even when he first got captured, he's like, okay, if I can just make the springtime, we'll be a little bit stronger, let the weather. Just talk about playing the long game. They, as they were planning this escape, uh, they were going to take Doyle and Smoke. And they were talking about it, and soon Smoke was doubled over. Doyle tried to get the Chinese to do something, but they ignored his pleas. Soon Smoke couldn't talk. He just lay in bed and moaned. When it got really bad, he screamed. Finally, he passed out. His face was locked in a tor- tortured grimace, and his skin turned ashen. At noon, the medic that was helping him turned to us and shook his head. He's dead. The words landed on us like mortar rounds. I just stood there staring at his face in shock. Dead. How could this have happened in such a short time? Only seven months ago, men were dying all around us. It was normal. Since we'd moved, prisoners didn't die anymore. We were the survivors. This wasn't supposed to happen to anyone anymore. The shock quickly boiled up into a rage. And these guys kind of, you know, kind of yell at the Chinese and make a little, they they kind of cause some, some problems. Um, nothing too drastic, but, you know, they weren't, they weren't just cowering anymore. Back to the book, the winter of 1952 to 53 was livable compared to the past two winters. We were allowed to select our own leaders and organize committees to work on different facets of our daily life. A sanitation committee, athletic committee, a daily action committee, all brought some semblance of order to our lives. Food had improved too. We got steamed bread, vegetables, and rice. Once in a while, some fish and meat. But it was usually just a scrap. The change in diet was enough to let us gain some weight. July 27th, 1953, the Chinese had us all in a formation when they announced that a peace agreement had been reached. We stood silently looking at one another. No one said anything. This news had been a long time coming. I just stood there, a smile plastered across my face. I looked down at my rail-thin frame. Like a map, it showed my journey. Scars on my back from shrapnel, a missing tooth. Night blindness from lack of vitamins, which luckily only lasted for a couple of weeks. I was one of the fortunate ones. I'd survived. And that's it. I mean, that's like... It, like it just changes immediately now they still have to get out of there to this day when I think of our movement south I still get butterflies in my stomach they were moving us to the railhead at Mampo the Chinese gave one of the prisoners a lock and told him to close the gates after the trucks pulled out after we passed he snapped the lock shut 
closing some of the darkest chapters in my life and um, <clears throat> they continue this trains planes and automobiles to try and get to freedom we boarded and finally we get to we boarded the trucks and proceeded to cross freedom bridge to freedom village when we arrived I didn't wait for the tailgate to drop I jumped right out onto the ground there were two American escorts for each of us they grabbed me and I thought holy shit these guys were big and muscular I quickly realized they were average guys I was just a little skinny and at one point he gets on a scale and he weighed 108 pounds our first stop was tent city in a thousand yard neutral circle in the rice patties we stripped we stripped showered and deloused having put on slippers and pajamas we were checked by good-looking nurses we stayed less than an hour before we moving to another building to get uniforms and our first meal after our meal we were flown by helicopter to a replacement depot in Incheon it was my first helicopter flight and I sat near the door and watched Korea pass in a blur below me I felt like screaming singing and dancing but instead I remained subdued quiet and happy inside 57 years have passed and I can still remember how great it felt like being born again and he gets on the phone and he says I reached my dad I could hear the excitement in his voice he bombarded me with questions are you all right when you coming home don't worry about me I'll be okay there was some kind of calmness inside of me that was difficult to describe I'd been through so much that just being free and headed home was enough after worrying about living day in and day out I wondered if anything would ever bother me in the future the voyage back to California on the Brewster which was the ship they were on was great they served three meals a day the small things mattered more now than before we were subjected to daily debriefings which were more like interrogations by intelligence officers he goes through answering a bunch of questions about what he saw and what he went through and they were actually trying to figure out if there were more like how many other prisoners were there other prisoners that were left behind mm. he finishes those and those interrogations or those questioning or intel gathering situations and then for the rest of the voyage I stayed on the deck I sucked in the fresh sea air and basked in the warm breeze everything I could hear smell and see was so full of life as I looked over the rail of the ship I remembered three years ago looking down at the sea and praying that I would have the strength to lead my men in combat now I was returning by myself I had been born again a chance to live for tomorrow to make the most of every day and never look back I had survived the greatest laboratory of human behavior one that no education could ever equal Weeks later, the Golden Gate Bridge jutted out of the fog as the ship pulled into port. We had a few hours before our flight, so I left and walked around the post. My path took me to the post cemetery. It was very quiet, and my thoughts were on all of the men and friends that were no longer with me. Walsh, Garot, Smoke. I could feel them standing above me. I hoped they were smiling and happy for me 
because it was my men, my section that had kept me motivated and alive. I owed my freedom and survival to them. A number of us flew to Chicago where we changed planes. When the plane left Chicago, I was the only returning prisoner of war aboard. Although the plane was full of people, I felt very lonely. I was free and on my way home with mixed emotions. I realized that I had just left men that I had lived with 24 hours a day for 34 months. It was sad that with all the freedom surrounding me that there was an empty feeling. There were also thoughts of the ones who would never return. The ones whose lives had been lost almost before they began. When we landed in Philadelphia, the stewardess asked if we would remain seated for just a minute while a special passenger exited the plane. To my surprise, that special passenger was me. I walked down the stairs and onto the tarmac. Waiting there were my mother and father. They hugged and kissed me. This time, Unlike on the street before the war, I realized the act of affection between father and son was a wonderful thing. And I will never forget the emotion on my father's face as tears welled up in his eyes. And he goes on and there is a a whole story within a story within a story in this about a, a woman that was an associate a friend and 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 several others and there was there's a whole other realm to this but he he gets you know he starts to get back on with his life a little bit back to the book while I was absorbing the sounds and sights of freedom I was beginning to think about my future I had been given a second chance and was determined that I was not going to blow it Claire and I had become inseparable and I was falling in love with her. My only fear was that the feeling might not be mutual. We had a wonderful Christmas holiday and both realized that we were definitely meant to be together. During a New Year's Eve party, I gave Claire an engagement ring. She said yes. We announced to everyone that we were going to be married. There were happy people, sad people, and mad people. To tell the story behind this statement would take another book, but five children and 56 years later, we're still happily married. And from there, and this is, this is like, as I was, you know, researching this whole situation, this is, so he gets done with this and he ends up going to officer candidate school in the army. Uh, Gets assigned to the 505th Airborne Infantry Regiment that's fine awesome just outstanding and then he then he goes to special forces at Fort Bragg North Carolina and so he's you know becomes a Green Beret special forces guy and then he goes to Vietnam and he is the two-time commander of Project Delta in Vietnam which is like the 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 deep reconnaissance like the 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 the, uh, the format like this is how we do deep reconnaissance is based on project delta and project mm. delta has also had beckwith in it charlie beckwith who is the the founder of delta force mm. so you know richardson just drives on and does deployments to vietnam going into 
enemy territory territory deep in enemy territory mm. and ends up doing 39 years in the army and and you know like you said has uh, you know the wife and the kids and the incredible career and and after that you know had a civil has a civilian career he's still alive by the way yeah then here's what he closes out with he says every day on this journey I believed the men of the weapons platoon and my close buddies in prison were watching me to see how I looked after my men and prepared them for whatever they may have had to face I tried my best to make them proud of me. So, well, I think that Colonel Richardson, I think we can absolutely uh, answer in the affirmative that yes, I think anyone would be proud of how you handled yourself uh, how you led and then on top of that how you lived your life I mean I think that's just um, self-evident in every page of this book which once again valleys of death is an unbelievable book should be handed out to people should be issued in the military as far as I'm concerned and I mean I think in reading the book I mean, it's like your actions, Colonel Colonel Richardson's actions, his behavior. I mean, how can you not be? How can you not think to yourself that you can do a little bit better with the situation that you're in, and realize how much people are, how much human beings are capable of? I don't. I just don't. I don't see how you could read this and not walk away and say, you know what, I'm gonna do better. And whatever situation you're in look and I know people end up in horrible situations but no matter what that situation is no matter what it is you can you can move forward you can move forward you can keep your mind positive you can use your mind as your weapon and also you can you know one of the parts in that's encompassed in that is like oh you can actually have have fun and keep your sense of humor when you're going through these ter- terrible situations which people ask me that all the time like don't you do you think it's important to have a sense of humor like of course i do you know of course i do but again um colonel richardson if you ever hear this obviously there is a wide open invite for you to come and debrief us and teach us life lessons here and tell us about tell us more detail and the parts that I know I missed and things that I messed up I apologize but uh, thanks thanks for your service thanks for your sacrifice and thanks for showing us showing us how to live properly even in the most dire of circumstances with that that was long yeah I was reading this book and it was just I I couldn't I couldn't stop Mm -hmm. I couldn't stop I couldn't stop it's one of those books you just don't you just don't see 
it's 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 so hard to understand like some of that combat in the beginning is crazy mm. it's crazy mm. just the situation that they were in I mean you're surrounded by the Chinese for three days and they're just hammering your perimeter on night with waves human waves and then you get the note dropped from a pl- from a damn plane that yeah. says no relief is coming. Find your way out. Yeah. Oh, appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. And then you got to leave your wounded. That's yeah. that's what happens. It's like yeah. okay, we either all die. Or we got to leave. I mean, these are, this is just like it's incredible. Yeah. It's incredible. And you you should read this so you get some sort of semblance of maybe what your thoughts are going to be when you if you get into a situation like that whatever it is mm. so yeah always learning always and for me again I get done with this and I can't even sleep because I think to myself I got so much opportunity yeah as guess what oh I wake up and I'm I can walk around I don't have shrapnel in my back yeah I get to eat food. Whatever you like. Yeah, whatever you want. Whatever you want. There is an get app tra- now. Like, we, like people complain about working out. People <laughs> complain like, oh, yeah. you know, I don't feel like working out. What are you talking about? I got a good idea. Why don't you just be quiet? <laughs> just stop. People complain that they got to go to work. Guess what? You're blessed. You're lucky you get to go to work. Yeah. You're lucky. Bro, I was thinking about that yesterday, the working out thing. How, like, people complain only because my arm you know you have your situations that keep you from working out or training yeah and on the up like did you check yourself when you get it well it was a moment of appreciation is what it was so you know when you get you know you get injured or sick Mm. and you feel yourself getting better like oh shoot like a mark you know like today i felt better than i've felt this whole time kind Mm -hmm. of thing and you that's when the the waves of appreciation come back and back yeah. I think I'm back. You know what? The, the thing is also for those people that, you know, when you get an injury, you think it's going to last forever. That's what it feels it, like. It always yeah. feels like it's going to last done. forever. Yeah. And then you realize when you get back, you kind of forget that it even happened. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. So the eating, and that's a big part. Every time he mentions um, eating or starving or all the weight uh, that he lost. and we 108 were pounds. Yeah. So that, for whatever reason, those, that affects me a lot when I hear it. It's like, oh, man. Because you picture your biceps wouldn't be so big. It makes you, crushes your soul. Crushes your soul. Well, you know, just being hungry the whole time, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah. What's the longest you fasted for? Uh, Like 24 hours, okay, like a whole yeah, day. You, you need to get your 72 on. Mm, I don't know. I don't know. Because you're, you're saying, because being hungry goes away after a little while now yeah, again uh, yeah. i haven't done i haven't done hunger for 34 months yeah well it goes away like after like seven hours i think or oh, okay. subsides like yeah. to me in my experience it depends on you yeah. who you are i'm sure but at, at about four five hours that's when that's peak hunger right mm-hmm. there in my experience but either way mm-hmm. so you know when he gets back like he gets you know the, i can't even believe it. wait just so everyone knows we are in no stretch of the any sort of imagination trying to compare a fast for 24 hours yes. with 34 <laughs> months 34 wow. months and i mean look at look at captain plum six years in hanoi hilton eating yeah. a rice ball in the morning and a rice ball in the evening yeah. with filled with wood chips yeah. what's up wood chips you know what you go to a restaurant right now if your rice is like slightly overcooked you're complaining or like hey, can you bring this back yeah never mind bugs and wood chips in there <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, no, not wood chips. Typically, no. Yeah, it's um, yeah, that's that's rough to say the least. But now, you know, and I look, I'm living, you know, we're living kind of this journey with him in a small way, right? And he, the peace, you know, the, they come to you know peace agreement. So he's back on the boat, feeling the warm air, mm. eating three times a day. Man, it makes you think like. Now, okay, what, 2018, right? Mm-hmm. Bro, there's like, there's more than one too. There's many, many apps on your phone mm-hmm. that you can be like, hey, I want a triple burger, <laughs> double cheese. Uh, bacon. Uh, bacon, avocado, and you know what? Grilled onions. Grilled onions, and I'm going to need that grass-fed. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah I'm just saying. This kind of steak it, isn't quite good enough yes, for me over exactly here. Exactly, right. So, and by the way, can I get the, what's that special kind of mayonnaise that has like something else in it? Well, there's a few. So yeah, it's called so, the aioli. Yeah, so, the aioli. Maybe yeah, you want yeah. some of that aioli, right? <laughs> yes. You want the aioli mayonnaise, because yes. that other normal mayonnaise isn't quite in your, you know, yeah, you, yeah. you need to step I, it up. We just don't want that yeah, one. Yeah, we don't want you that know, We don't want that one. We want the good one. So, and so let me go ahead and click this God, button. We're so spoiled. Yeah, and then it comes to your door. In oh about, yeah, yeah, in about fifteen minutes. Somebody brings it there in fifteen yeah. minutes. Screw driving. Seven. There. If, driving. It's, if it's if it's twenty two minutes, you're kind of mad because that, that like you know yeah. I was hungry. Yeah. Yep. yep. Don't you know that? And it'll say ten to twenty two minutes on it, the app. It, like people, people, they get separated from their phone, and they freak <laughs> out, right? Yes. I mean, you imagine this, like what you would even know. Yeah, what what's happening? Anything in the world? You know nothing. You know nothing of what's happening in the world and that's the least with your problems. family. Yeah, Probably. nothing. Yeah, yeah. So with this, since other people have suffered through that, maybe in in our world, you can you can try and get yourself on a little bit better of a path with a little bit more discipline in the world is what I'm saying. Yeah. I know I need to step it up harder, yeah. do more, try and yeah. make more stuff happen. Yeah. Because yeah. the opportunities there, think about, you know, and the crazy thing is, Richardson's one of the people that survived because there's thousands upon thousands that didn't, that yeah. died of diarrhea, that died of dysentery, that died of gangrene. And infections. Yeah. So, man, we got it made. So, you know what? We got it made, so make something. How's that sound? We got it made, so make something of what you got. Which is everything, by the way. Which is everything, by the way. Unless you're in a, next to, unless you're drowning in a trench full of shit. 108 pounds with no, with your legs not working, with scars in your back. Unless you're in that situation, how about you step up and like just start moving in the right direction? Do a little. Something. We're doing all right. Yeah, and and the helpful or what makes it helpful is like perspective, right? When you put it into perspective, let's say you're living your life every day, you're all used to it. We're all used to it, and you don't feel like doing something. That's really what it what it comes mm. down to. And of course, there's different levels of not feeling like doing something. It's like kind of not feeling like doing something, or hey, that this is straight. I'm not going to happen today. Kind of feel not feel like doing something. So when you put it into perspective, I don't know if you can like you, right it's, after this it's book. Like, no, it's yeah. a non it's a non argument. Exactly. It right. doesn't even it doesn't hold zero water whatsoever. Exactly right. You None. can't get to a place you that you don't you feel can't, like you doing. can't convince me ever that whatever you're saying is is even remotely weighs in on the situation at all ever exactly right that's where i don't want to you know whatever yeah when you know it needs to get done and you don't feel let's say man i haven't slept in two days 
let's say that Ooh. that's legitimate in everyday life like man you get your rest bro oh yeah but yeah. if it needs to be done after you read this book let's say you didn't sleep because you read that book and you were mm-hmm. just up for two days you really don't feel like going to the gym i'll tell you that <laughs> physically but i mentally, like the way you bring it back to just <laughs> go, going and doing a bicep workout <laughs> or whatever you know bro i hope people you, I, I hope people as a bare minimum I hope people use the the mindset you can pull from the from the perspective you get from this. I hope at a bare minimum you get your workouts. At the maximum, I hope you step up and just take over the world. Yeah, because it's sitting there right in front of you. Yeah, you're not locked behind barbed wire. Nope. You don't have your arms strung up behind your back getting hung from the ceiling. So painful that you pass out. By so the way. painful that you pass out. Which that's just what does that even mean? It means you can kind of do anything, really. When you when you kind of put it into perspective, so so what are we me doing? And, me and Dave Burke, <laughs> good deal, Dave. <laughs> yes, but you know, we'll 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 he does reads a lot of books too, and he just like man, we didn't we just suck compared yeah. to these guys. <laughs> We're just pathetic. <laughs> yeah, I could hear and him I'm saying like, that. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, it's just you can't even. Yeah, like Especially I, how- I sent him a note. I was wanting to know. I was like, you did. Hey, you had combat. Um, you did combat flights in Afghanistan and Iraq, and he's like. He's like, bro, come on, you know, that's just, come on. And I'm like, well, he's like, yeah, did I technically, did I drop bombs in those countries? Yes. Were they considered combat operations? I'm like, yeah. And he's like, but come on. He's like, he's like, I got two words for you. Iwo Jima. And I was like, all right, I get it, man. But yeah, that's, that's how you feel when you get done with something like this. And then by the way, he's got a, a, a one one half of a paragraph where he's like, oh, by the way, I did 39 years in the army, and by the way, I was in Vietnam, and by the way, I was in charge of Project Delta for two times, twice. Yeah. It's not that's like... just like a little sub... That's like a little... A little something... Like, just a little sub note. Yeah. A little PS. A little postscript. Yeah. Jeez. Talk about getting That should be on. its own book. Yeah. Each one of those command tours is its own book about doing deep reconnaissance into Vietnam. Are you kidding me? Yeah. That didn't even make the cut. <laughs> didn't even make the cut for the colonel. Yeah. He just said, "No, I'm just gonna." Whatever. Oh, yeah, whatever. He's like, "Oh yeah, no, I I talked about it. I put a paragraph in there, <laughs> half a paragraph." You know, yeah. So he not only did he power through it, he went back. Yeah. Jeez. I don't know. If, I don't know, man. That's 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 heavy. And he did power through it, by the way. Yeah. He didn't like. No, you know, he held oh, the line. He yeah, held the he line powered through. He didn't. Yeah, that part where he's talking about don't let them laugh at you. Don't let them laugh at you. I like. I underlined that and highlighted it, and then I put stars by it because that's the kind of thing that you think about. Like, like you know, the world sometimes seems like it's having a joke with you. Yeah, yeah. You know, like it's, it's put, yeah. like the joke is on you. Yes. You ever wake up? And you're like the joke is on the joke's on me, and the every world's day. laughing at me. Yes, every day. Like that's not a good feeling, right? No, you don't want to no. let that happen. No, you don't, and yeah, and he's man. See, even keeping the sense of humor, all this oh, stuff. Oh yeah, man. Sense Sorry. of humor, laughing. It was a shitty situation. Shitty situation, <laughs> yes, sir. It was. Never. Next time you think about something being shitty, now you know what a true <laughs> shitty situation is. Yes. We all knew. Now yeah. we all now have a new definition of what a shitty yep. situation is. A new standard. That's it. That's the standard. Yep. And there, that's it. That's the standard. Yeah. That's where you're at. Yeah. All so right. well, yeah. So, 
we're on the path. Like there's no, there's no one's off the path anymore. No, we I can't think, be. We I, can't. You're, you're not allowed just to be. Not even allowed. You're not allowed. You're just to be. on the path. All right. So when you when you start jujitsu, if you haven't already, which most of us have. Yeah. Holy cow! Most there's of us have. There, oh yeah, it's like everyone that's thinking that's still on the fence, yeah. right? Just just get over the it's fence time. because yeah, yeah. every single person. No, I won't say every single person. There is a. Uh, what percentage I've heard feedback I think from a total feedback of three people and it might only be two that actually just didn't like jujitsu yeah. actually it's three one female two males the one the one male I went back and forth with for a while you know he was like hitting me up on Twitter this was pretty early on he's just like I just don't like it I don't like the person grinding on me and and finally with that guy he just didn't want to do it man yeah. and I was like look do you know hey cool yeah. You don't want to ruin your life. Yeah. Don't make this into a living hell because you do something you you fully hate. It wasn't until the next guy that bitterly complained mm-hmm. that I was like, "Listen, okay, here's the plan. Keep doing it until you submit someone. Once you submit someone, you can stop." Yeah. I didn't think of that plan yet until the guy number two. And the other right, one was right. a female that it was two things. Uh, didn't really like it, but more important, didn't have anywhere to train and kind of just got off the path. But yeah. so. Uh, but th- that's three out of many, yeah, many, 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 many. I mean, most people are like, oh, yeah, I'm obsessed now. I'm obsessed. Yeah. Win or lose. Like yeah. sometimes people will be like, hey, I, I got beat up for for an hour and a half. Well, everyone says just went to my first jujitsu class, got choked 28 times by a 14 year old kid. Yeah, I love, love it. it. Yeah. Yep. If you got your ego in check, you say, I love it. That's if you don't how. got your ego in check, you're like, you know, I don't know if this is for me. <laughs> I couldn't punch him. Yeah, Go try yeah. and punch him. Try and punch that 14-year-old. See what that triangle feels like then. Because <laughs> it doesn't feel good. Yeah. People go hard. Have you ever had Dean go hard on a triangle on you? Like uh, actually no. offensively? He did a triangle me to me. He was just showing me something. He locked that triangle up so tight, I felt it in my lower back. That doesn't even make <laughs> sense. It moved my spinal cord. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't doubt it for sure. Yeah. But all right, so game, we are doing jujitsu. That's, that's kind of the, that's kind of the deal. Yeah. So what gi do you get? What rash guard do you get? Hey, look, there's plenty of gi's, plenty of rash guards. Uh, not really. All from Origin. Yeah. There's only one. <laughs> well, the good news is, and I was talking to some folks at the muster about this a few times actually. Mm. You know, hey, what gi should I get? They're still asking that question. Well, that's the thing. They already know the origin gi. Oh, now it's so which what one gi which should one? I get? I say, got hey, it. get whatever We've one you got want. More advanced than our questions. Yeah, because it's not the kind. Even if you get the, you know how there's like levels, if you even want to call them that. We'll say price point, if you will, like mm. the more ex- more expensive one. Yep. It's not the kind where you get that and then you come in as a new white belt and everyone's like, ooh, you're kind of flossing hard with that. That you know, no, no, like no. if you get, it's some, not like in wrestling. If you wear gold shoes in wrestling, yes, exactly. That's right. It's not thing. like that. It's not. Like that. Or you the, dye your hair. Or yes, yeah. okay. that's a little statement, right? Yeah. That's a statement. Yeah, these guys not I like got that. Bright orange hair. Yeah, I'm I'm really good. Yeah, the gi's not like that. No, no sir. Gi's just a gi functional. Yeah, man. You know, maybe you know. I I don't obviously I don't go with Pete and be like, hey, why are we doing this? This is particular. So I don't know, but I'm assuming maybe it took more to make certain ones or whatever. But get get to, the point is get whichever one you want. Yeah, straight up. Yeah, lightweight, heavyweight, whatever. Mm-hmm. From originmain.com. True, true. Also, you got um, rash guards. If if you want a rash guard, then you can get a legit rash guard. Mm-hmm. You got um, t-shirts as well at from Origin. So basic like clothing. Yep. Guess what we're, we're making right now at this time? 
Denim. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good guess. Did he right? send you a pair yet? <laughs> no. no, I'm, no. Getting, oh, I'm getting my, I haven't gotten my pair yet. But right. yeah, we're making jeans. So just be on standby. It's going to take a little while to get the, that ramped up. But you look uh, good, though. I saw pictures. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's right. He posted them. Yeah. Yeah. Looks so good, man. we will be, we'll be making, because you know why? Because everyone needs, every human wears jeans. Yeah. Because they're functional. Yeah. So every human needs jeans. Yeah. And if everyone does, then why not get jeans that are made here, made with the highest quality, all that stuff. Anyways, yeah, so yeah, yeah jeans are coming. We also got some supplements. Yep, Jocko supplements. So what? Joint warfare, mm-hmm. krill oil, mm-hmm. discipline, milk, and worry kid milk. So what do these cover? <laughs> the most important elements, I think, of su- supplementation. So joints. Those are gonna go out on you. That's a, if if you're into lifting heavy, you into jujitsu hard, you into you work hard. If you have like mm. a manual labor type job, yep, moving company. Yeah, I and know I'll, I know you were a mover. I was American a movers. bouncer. A bouncer that that wasn't very hard. Could on my be physical joints. sometimes. Yeah, I mean you'd Standing have to work around all night. Yes, on your like feet and knees, mm-hmm. maybe depending. But uh, I would say you know just when you're. I would say the workouts. The workouts get your joints, I think, especially over time, especially if you're going very often. And here's one of the things about the joint stuff. A big part of it is you don't realize how much much benefit there is to taking krill oil and joint warfare on Mm. a regular basis until you do it. Yeah, or until you stop. Oh, yeah, big time. Which I haven't stopped. I can't even answer that question, but you've told me. Yes, I have stopped. stopped. Yes. So, yeah, joint warfare, krill oil, discipline, which discipline, like during the muster, I drink a lot of discipline because, yeah. like, you know, it's like go time the whole time. Yeah. So that's what. Now I'll tell you, we got something else coming out. We got discipline in little pills, go pills. And I'll tell you why. I can't always pound right. a bunch of discipline drink before, I, let's say, I'm going out to speak. Sure. I don't want to have to, like, hit the head in the middle yeah. of the speech because I drank, right. like, a bottle of water right before I went out there. Right. So, anyways, I was like, hey, can we make these things in little pills that I can take that can kind of get me yeah. in the rock and roll mode real quick? So, yeah, got and, those coming and out. And it's not to mention you got to mix it up and no, stuff, yeah. which isn't no, no, no. a big deal. But if you're on uh, the good go, go, go yeah. then, you know. So, yeah, discipline, go, go pills, go common. Pills. And they got a little bit of nootropic in them. They got a little bit of caffeine in them. They got a little bit of go in them. A little bit of go. That's the main ingredient. The main ingredient is go. <laughs> <laughs> dig it. I dig it. Hey, also, okay, so as we know, the Warrior Kid Mulk is live. And as we also know, is tasty. Oh, it's live already. <laughs> it's live. Yeah. So it was This morning, I was I was making some strawberry mulk for the kids. For, for me, but it's the kids' milk. And everyone in my house is freaking going nuts. Everyone in my house is just drinking strawberry milk. Like, right. Except for my youngest daughter. She's all about the chocolate. But somebody took the milk scoop from the water, and like it was gone. <laughs> and this is where I realized there's something going on because I, I said to my wife, I said, hey, where's, I said, hey, where's the scoop for the, for the strawberry quick? I actually called it strawberry quick, right? Because it tastes the, 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 yeah. yeah. Used and to. now, now I was talking to Brian, and Brian's got pe- people are like notifying him that they're getting like the nostalgic, yeah, <laughs> nostalgic yes, 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 memories yes. Mm-hmm. of drinking Nestle's quick, yeah, because that's where we're at. The strawberry one, the chocolate one, doesn't taste as much like it tastes delicious, but it doesn't taste the same like whatever, like the quick, like the like exactly like quick does. 
because that quick, let's face it, isn't, isn't really that great. But the strawberry quick is great. Our chocolate is probably better than the Nestle's chocolate. Mm-hmm. The strawberry quick is almost a replica. And this is is it illegal for me to say this? Is this like comparing the no. brands or something? Like no, nah, man. Okay, well, then illegal. Cool. Yeah, no, no, no. All good. And the nostalgia part that is that is something. And I felt it too. The what part? The nostalgia. The nostalgia. Yeah, because yeah, like, oh, I like I this. Yes, yes. You know where I used to get them from the Seven Eleven. Yeah, the strawberry quick from the Seven Eleven. Yeah, we got it from a store called. Big Save on Kauai. Oh, Kauai, yeah, you know, no, I remember that. <laughs> yeah, you got to Big Save. Of course you do. But yeah, that's for you, for the protein and the regular milk. That's for the protein so, too. Oh, so this is the other thing I, I wanted to say is as soon as I had the Warrior Kid strawberry milk, I texted Brian 14 seconds later and sure. said, make adult, you know, milk strawberry. So it's in the works. Oh, yeah. Um, there's a couple, there, there's, you can't just say, "Well, I'll just double up," because there's a little bit more protein in it. In the you want you want to get a little bit more protein in the adult milk. Yeah, yeah. So, anyways, if you're that's co- for those of you that are freaking out. In the meantime, take two scoops of two scoops of Warrior Kid milk, and you're still doing all right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you are. Also, yeah. if you want to represent the discipline equals freedom way, because mm. discipline does equal freedom. I think the more you grow up in life and embrace the discipline, you understand that more. Because there are le- there are levels of understanding. To the core. To the core. Anyway, if you want to represent, go to jockostore.com because Jocko has a store. Ch- shirts on there. Hoodies. Any, any second now. Hoodies. More hoodies. Winter hoodies? Winter hoodies. Well. Uh, Michigan hoodies? If you're. If you're Iowa? Winter hoodies, but, Minnesota, know, potentially, or yeah. Kauai. <laughs> they're not Kauai hoodies. They're, they're mainland, uh, mainland, you know. or at least we're in the mainland. We are in the mainland that's, on these hoodies good, for sure. Thing. Maine? What about my people? Probably, yeah. All right. Anyway, the point is, there's a lot of cool stuff on there. I think it's cool. Defcore, defcore stuff to the core. All, all things, uh, technically, are defcore. Technically, true. true. I'm gonna leave it at that. Also. Hats on there and women's stuff. Also, rash guards, too. And the, the hats are legit. Yes. Trucker's hats, by the way. Yeah, some new For stuff For those of you that. that are more more old school, in my opinion, trucker's hats are more old school. That's yeah. what I wore when I was a kid, trucker's hats. Yeah, they come in and out, though. You know how they go out, then they come back in. No. The style. That's just the, I've been wearing Oh, you don't know time. about style. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I forgot, right. I forgot. Anyway, flexit hats on there as well. A lot of good stuff. If you want something, get something. Good way to represent while staying on the path. There's some tea on there. The Jocko tea is on there and various other things. Anyway, check it out. JockoStore.com. Yeah. And if you want to, you can subscribe to this podcast. Why do we even say this? Well. I guess. Okay. If you're listening right now and you've been listening for three freaking, uh, four, I don't know, three and a half hours. If you're, if you've done that, go ahead and subscribe because you're, you're, you definitely are part of the team here. Yeah, you're <laughs> if, in the you, game. if you yeah. if you haven't heard if you haven't listened to this point well then guess what you're not going to subscribe because you don't want to subscribe so yeah. if you haven't subscribed and you hear the sounds coming out of my mouth right now go ahead and subscribe itunes google play stitcher and then leave a little review action so we can uh, have a good time with it also don't forget about their the warrior kid podcast the warrior kid podcast you can ask kids ask questions to uncle jake and Uncle Jake tells stories about when he was a kid and where he got his 
way from where he where he uncovered the way also you got the warrior kid soap from irishoaksranch.com aiden's up there he's taking advantage of life yeah guess what you got goats you're in california you can't sell goat milk guess what you can do make soap yeah that's what aiden's doing young aiden you know, I was watching Shark Tank. Mm-hmm. You know that show, the entrepreneur mm-hmm. show. Mm-hmm. And you know, there's a kid on there doing his mm-hmm. thing. And what was, was he like, making? Respect. Uh, what was it? Some glue. Okay. Some washable glue. He's using mm-hmm. it for Legos, which was kind of odd. But mm-hmm. I guess if you're, you know, anyway, long. But I thought it, I thought about Aiden. Yeah. And the Jocko soap. There you I go. I can see Aiden up there with Jocko next to him. Good. Or whatever you say all the time. You know, same thing. <laughs> anyway, yes. Good. And if you while you're in the subscribe mode. Then also subscribe to the the YouTube channel, the Jocko Podcast YouTube channel. If you want to see Echo's videos, which he puts all kinds of time and effort into, he's real super. He gets super <laughs> Thanks, crazy about it and makes everything explode and and, and dust and the lights yeah. reflecting off of things and sure. music, cello music. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> <laughs> so that's on the YouTube channel, mm-hmm. and we got some other things planned for the YouTube channel. Coming shortly, coming quickly. We'll see. I don't yep. know if "quickly" is really a word that we used a lot back in Hawaii, but you know, <laughs> we'll, we'll yeah. do our best. And we're gonna we're making it happen. And then you got we'll "Psychological that. Warfare" little little album with some tracks to kind of help you push through some of those moments of weakness where you're thinking you just want to eat that donut. You don't need to. No, you just don't need to. Yep. So that'll help you out. And we're also making a second "Psychological Warfare" album. And if you want that, then you can. Uh, if you want to, if you want, if you have a special request for that, yeah. should I do sm- stop smoking cigarettes? I've never smoked cigarettes. I I think you should at least yeah do okay. it, and then if it's like yeah, because I I would think, but as far as potential problems, you might run into like you know how like on the other ones, like you can I can you can relate, so you you know yeah, kind of what yeah, to yeah, say yeah, about it, true. you know, like hey, you're thinking this or whatever. Yeah, um, yeah, with the smoking. Maybe you could compare it to something maybe you felt that you might be addicted to in the past, but I don't know. I, I think that's a whole <laughs> No man, that's a whole different game. I'm, no, I'm no, pretty I like croutons, like it's you know Yeah, but I th- again I think it's a different game to okay, really like check. croutons and to be addicted to smoking. I, I don't know. I've never smoked check. Well that yeah, that's that one's available wherever you get MP threes, iTunes, Google Play, whatever. Yeah. Also, if you're on the path, working out, that's part of it. Mm-hmm. Right, my my four things. Working out was one of them, and you want to vary up your workouts. So this is where you get your kettlebells. On it, on it dot com. Come, it's called on it dot com slash jocko slash jocko. By the way, get some rings, kettlebells, a mace. I'm I'm. You got to The mace is dangerous if you don't know what you're doing. So mm, yeah, because the maces seem like they're not heavy. Yeah, and you pick that thing up, and you're Were like, you yeah, talking I'm about the big. What's the big long thing with the ball in the end called? Oh, that's the mace. No, I'm thinking about the club. The club bells. The yeah, club, the club yes. bells are way more dangerous than the mace. Yeah, and that's what I'm saying. Where the club bells, if you drop a club bell on your toe, you will lose your toe. Yeah, and the that workout thing is, is my, that should be called a toe remover. Yes. If you were in a hospital Could and you were like, oh, you got a bad toe, we're gonna have to remove it. Okay, cool. Come over here. Whack. <laughs> That thing's gone. What's up, the club? Yeah, I like to work well, out barefoot sometimes. Yeah, me too. and like you—that's yeah, a dangerous proposition. So be yeah, careful. Just be, yeah, and really, I mean, us saying it, it makes it sound like oh, like almost more dangerous than it really. Uh, well, my point is, go on there and look 
at the yeah. workouts first. Well, it's not that no. dangerous because I've never done it, and I still have all my toes. Well, I've yeah. never I've worked out with it a bunch, and yeah. I still have all my toes, so it's not that big of a deal. Right, but when you picked it up, you're like, dang, this is kind of heavy. And then oh, when yeah, you yeah. swing it, Ooh, you're like, yeah. whoa, 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 let me get the smaller one. Yeah. So, well, that's how I was anyway. But anyway, you can get that stuff there. Rings are a big deal, in my opinion. Rings. Yeah, definitely you should have rings. If you don't I, have rings, get them. You see how I said that? In my opinion, like I just know about the even though you were preaching rings from day one. <laughs> now nah, I'm signed on to the ring. How's anyway. the big stability muscles coming? <laughs> <laughs> They're stable, man. They're yeah, stable. Super stable. Anyway, yeah, I, I posted a picture of my son. I don't really post that many pictures yeah. of like my kids all the time or yeah. nothing like that. Every once in a while, sure. But he was lifting you know when you lift and yeah. it's like he just jumps in and says yeah. my turn he does a yeah. deadlift does yeah. it pretty good kids yeah. have good form by the way yes they do so he does a deadlift on one of the little on it kettlebell mm-hmm. is a smaller well, one how is he two two yeah, yeah. and he's like yeah, watch me he did what was the weight 18 pounds how much does he weigh i don't know 18 pounds seems a little light it was like he did it easy well, anyway, okay, I took, well, I took a why, why aren't you Why aren't you getting him a bigger kettlebell? He can start pushing the envelope a little bit. <laughs> Look, we're not going to raise your kid to be weak. No, we're not talking. I'm just saying that's what he did at that time, and I took a picture of oh. it. I'm not saying he, we were maxing out, me okay. and my two-year-old okay. were maxing out deadlift, Maybe and he only time. could do 18. That's not what I'm saying. That's okay. what I'm saying. Anyway, I took a picture of it so you can see it. Okay. And it's and it has, I looked at the picture, and I kind of evaluated. I was like, this is a good picture because it has like all the kettlebells, yeah, you know, the set, it kind of scattered about. You framed it up. Well, I was technically, you I mean, truth be told, I was, I'm was i making a video. Oh, okay. Which may or may not have warrior kid themes oh. to it. And <laughs> so while I was doing it, I took that picture. Anyway, it looks good. Uh, on it was highly represented in that picture. I well, liked it. Let me tell you this. Uh, maybe... If you would give your kid some Jocko White tea, he would be able to deadlift more than 18 pounds. He would, might be able to deadlift 8,000 pounds. In fact, there's an actual guarantee, because there's no age minimum requirement. If you get that kid on the Jocko White tea, there's the 8,000 pound deadlift. Actually, my girl drank <laughs> two drinks, legitimate drinks of my wife's Jocko White tea, and she deadlifted 8,000 pounds. There you go. Yeah, Once one hour later, proven. yes. Yep. Proven. 100% kids, uh, everything. Jocko White tea, you can get the cans which are ready to drink, or you can get the tea bags that you have to boil water to. Big, oh God, I don't want to boil water. <laughs> Pain in the ass, to, man. Then you have to seep. You have to seep it. But what I'll tell that? you what, when you, in the morning, I, I don't drink uh, Jocko white tea warm in the morning every morning, okay. but there's certain situations, like at the muster, sure. oh, I'm all about it. And, you know. What does seep mean? Seep means you put the tea bag in there. And you let it sit for a little while. And I, for some people, they pull it out. I just leave it in there the whole time. You, okay. you know, Alan? Alan put stages. Oh, Alan from yeah. Mus- Mustard. Yeah. Mustard Alan. Alan. Yeah. He stages. He stages. <laughs> like When I get up to the podium, it's staged. Yeah, and I'm man. just like. Oh. Yeah, I dig it. So what, what's good about that is it's, it's, I don't know, in the morning time, we just have a little warm. Well, I guess it's hot. Technically, it's hot, but I drink it warm. I'm with you. I don't know that there's a better beverage for that little morning, little morning scenario. Yeah, this yeah. is a little morning scenario, just a little, little cup of dark white tea. So you can get that. Um, also, I got some books. I got the way of the warrior kid, one and two, and Mark's mission. It's one and two. It's the same series, and those books, I get more incredible heartfelt feedback 
yeah. on those two books than I could have ever imagined. Yeah. And it's awesome because kids can relate to the books and it is great for the kids and it's great for the parents too. And I get parents that just say, this is making me a better parent because it's all just a big, it's all just a cover and move, right? I'm yeah. giving you this information. You're, you get to flank your kid because your kids aren't going to listen to you. Not yeah. 100%, they'll listen to you a little bit, yeah. but they'll listen to someone that they, some, some other person that seems like kind of tough Yep. That they want to listen to Uncle Jake. Yep. Uncle Jake starts telling them what to do and they're down. Totally down. And yeah, so the Warrior Kid books one and two, obviously get one first mm-hmm. because it's a, it's a story and it kind of continues and you need to grow and it's going to continue to grow. Yeah. We're going to see this, we're going to see young Mark all the way through through high school. Yeah. Right? And yeah, so those books will help kids get on the path, teach them about discipline, teach them about hard work, teach them about eating right, teach them about study habits, teach them about taking responsibility. It's like everything that a kid needs to know, to be quite honest with you. Yeah, this is, and this is kind of mean, I guess, in a way. So I have Worry Kid 2, Mark's mission on repeat in the household. Helps that for my daughter's kindergarten, they suggest like all these things that you should do every day and you can kind of choose one and one is reading or, mm, you know, there you go. for a certain amount of time. So I just read one chapter every single night, mm. every single night as punishment. I won't though, Dang. which is ve- pretty rare. That's to be pretty honest. awesome though. Yeah. Like if I s- I'll threaten, Hey, no chapter tonight. You know, she scrambles to, you know, <laughs> fall in line anyway. Um, so the good thing about having it on repeat, because obviously we finished or whatever, I'm on round two, like t- towards the end of the book, and she just knows. She knows the, the answers now. You and know? she's still excited oh. about it. But yeah, because, well, now she knows, so it's all familiar, you know? Yeah. So she kind of knows. It's almost like now she's and sort she's of five. Uncle Jake. Five. Yes. I think she's, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. So that's the way the warrior kid and Mark Smith, get it for your kids Get it for your neighbor's kids. Get it for your kids across the street's kids. Oh, I'm sorry. Because why not just help kids out? Yeah, and it does help. What I, what I was about to say about I feel bad, because one night, this was like two nights ago, um, she got this new unicorn book, mm-hmm. kid's book. I don't know where she got it, from mm-hmm. school or something like this. Oh, yeah, from their library or whatever. You know, borrow the book. Excited new unicorn book. Probably read that thing. The thing is so lame. Mm-hmm. It's a kindergarten-level mm-hmm. book, mm-hmm. by the way. And... So I'm reading it, and I'm thinking this thing is lame. I'm looking at her. She's over there playing with Legos while I'm reading mm-hmm. it. She disengaged so quick disengaged. from that. Yeah, just, she was just off that. Get the Warrior book. Kid books back out. Yep. All day long. Yeah, I felt bad. Uh, equals Freedom, Field Manual. This was cool at the muster. A lot of people, this this book definitely, definitely hit people hard. Yeah. Discipline equals Freedom, Field Manual. So that book is a good, you know what this book's going to be good for? Christmas. I know it's only, what, Thanksgiving? Uh, Halloween, Halloween, yeah. But this book, Christmas time. This is the book you get for the, the person. Yeah, you know who you need it for. Yeah. Person that needs to get a little little help getting on the path. Yeah. So people read page a day, two pages a day. I read it. Yeah, I re- I wrote it and I read it because it keeps you on the path. So this one equals freedom field manual. Then you got, of course, extreme ownership, uh, which I wrote with my brother Leif Babin, which is just universally kind of becoming accepted as a as a as a book that you need to read as a leader and that's followed up by the dichotomy of leadership which just came out both those books new york times bestsellers both those books number one wall street journal bestsellers both those books continuing to be on those lists why because that's not through the big advertising campaign mm. 
that's just through word of mouth people get it for themselves and they get it for their teammate then they get it up the chain of command down the chain of command get your get your uh get your team in the game with the dichotomy leadership and, and extreme ownership and then we got mikey and the dragons which comes out in november so here's what it's about mikey young kid scared scared of everything finds a book the book that he finds it's called the dragon prince and he's scared to read it because there's pictures of scary dragons in it but then he gets the courage to read it because he sees a little boy in there too that kind of looks like he knows what's going on so he sees that little boy and he goes i'm gonna read it so he reads the book and in the book the dragon prince there's the king his dead and the boy is now the only one that will defend the kingdom from the dragons that are over the hill in the dragon cave mm. and the boy is scared because he's only seven years old mm. and he doesn't know what he's gonna do goes and finds his father's war chest pulls out the shield pulls out the sword they're too big for him and now he's even more scared but then he sees a note in the bottom of the war chest and he picks up the note and here's what it says after he finds this note it says to my son if you are reading this now it means I am gone and you are the one that must carry on our kingdom is now what you must save and to do that you have to be brave I know that you think you don't know what to do but remember that I was once a little boy too I was also small and had fear in my heart and I didn't even know where to start I couldn't imagine going over the hill to face the dragons that wanted to kill but don't worry son you will be just fine if you can just keep these things in your mind and then he goes on to explain to him how he can overcome his fear of the dragons and that's what the, the, the prince does the prince stands up to his fears and faces the dragons and then the boy Mikey learns from the lesson and you know we have to remember that <clears throat> we all have dragons to fight so and also remember that this book is coming out on Jocko Publishing. Why is that? The big publishers couldn't get it out in time for kids to have it for Christmas. That's what I, once I had the book in my mind, I wanted kids to have it by Christmas. And the big publishers couldn't make it happen because they're big, they're big, you know, they got a lot of moving pieces. We're nimble over here. You know, we're nimble. So since they couldn't get it out in time, I had to kind of, like, they're a big dragon. That's what they are. Sure. And so I had to kind of like stand up to the dragons and we can stand up to the dragons in our own right with this yeah. With this book. So if you want to help fight the dragons Then grab a sword or at least grab a copy and together. We'll slay the dragons <laughs> sure. Come and get some. Either one. Yeah. Also, we got echelon front leadership consultancy. That's what we do. We solve problems through leadership It's me. It's Leif It's JP Dave Flynn Mike Sorelli and Mike Baima don't call a speaking agency to get us we won't do it email echelon front or check the website echelonfront.com or you can email info at echelonfront.com the muster we just got done with the muster good show good show it's awesome awesome to be up there awesome to meet all these people coming from all over the world south africa new zealand right it's, uh, it's interesting too. this one woman came from new zealand 
and like yeah. didn't get a shout out. Leif was kind of naming some of the countries where people from yeah, were yeah. from. Yeah. And I don't think well, we didn't have it on the list or whatever. We should have done a better job of screening it. But she came up. She's like, I'm from New Zealand. And I was like, <sighs> she goes. I was like, oh, that's awesome. She goes, you guys didn't say it. I was like, oh, yeah, so I'm saying it now. It. Yeah. New Zealand was represented yeah. strongly. And I signed a book. She had to go. Uh, she had to do a little like f- I think she did a coin flip to figure out who gets to go to the muster. Her or her husband. Oh, she yeah. won. She so won. I signed books for him. <laughs> so yeah, come to the muster. Yeah. With the, the next one there's going to be one in Chicago in the spring and one in Denver in the fall. So it's looking like Australia in the winter. So uh, keep that on the down low. Sure, yeah, the down low. <laughs> but every uh, every muster we've done is sold out. And these are going to sell out too. So check extremeownership.com if you want to get into that game. Of course, now we also have EF Overwatch, a uh, big subject. Lots of people. It's it's the war on. It's the war for talent. That's what it is. Yeah. Everyone needs good. Well, if you have a problem in your world, what's going to solve that problem? Good leadership. Where do you get good leaders from? Well, what we figured out is we get good leadership from the military. So we got special operations and combat aviators that are ready to go out and do work and we're putting them into companies that need leaders so if you got a company or if you're a, a vet spec ops or or combat aviation go to ef overwatch and you can get in the game there and if you want to continue this conversation that we're kind of having right now you know it's been kind of a long conversation but if you want to keep it going sure. you can find us on the interwebs on twitter on Instagram and on Facebook, Echo is at Echo Charles, and I am at Jocko Willink. And thanks to all of you for making this podcast possible. By all of you, I mean first of all the military who protects our way of life and who sacrifice so much for our freedom and our security. And here at home, police, law enforcement, firefighters paramedics, EMTs, correctional officers, border patrols, first responders, you know who you are, those of you in uniform, thank you for your service in protecting us here at home and everyone that listens. Wherever you are and whatever it is that you do, teachers, investment bankers, plumbers, engineers, electricians, doctors, and nurses, and builders, and bricklayers, and everyone else that is out there making their way. Like I said earlier, it can get hard sometimes. That's the way life is. And sometimes you can actually hear life laughing at you sometimes. But I say don't let it. It's like when the Chinese guards conducted a mock execution on Colonel Richardson and the other prisoners prisoners that he was there with. And then the good the guards, they stood there and they were laughing. They were laughing at these terrified prisoners. And the colonel, he didn't like that at the time. The master sergeant, he didn't like that. So he yelled, he yelled, get up. Don't let them laugh at you. Get up. And I recommend that if you feel like the world is laughing at you, you do the same. You get up and get after it. And until next time, this is Echo and Jocko.